Alrighty. Hello all. I hope everyone is in a festive mood. I hope your festivities have been festively oriented. I hope you are festively approaching life as a whole. And I hope that I can come up with a few more variations on the word festive before Richard arrives in the room, which I'm sure will be happening very quickly. And if he doesn't arrive, well, then he should be hunted down by a mob with pitchforks and uh, torches because uh, that's what he deserves for shirking his responsibility in such an egregious manner. There he is. How's it going, Richard? Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm okay. I uh, came down with a pretty darn bad uh, cold these past couple days in uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, so that kind of threw a uh, wrench into whatever plans I might have had to enjoy the uh, strange week between Christmas and uh, New Year's where nothing really happens, but you're kind of supposed to have a, a bit of recreation, I guess, and relaxation. So I've just been uh, trying to recover and uh, about 80, 85% on the way there. But um, that's not that interesting. How how, uh, how was your uh, holiday period? Uh, it was all right. I mean, I was a little, I've been a little sick too. Everyone, I think, is getting sick. Uh, but yeah, we're better now. I mean, it is, uh, this is like the least I'll work, you know, the whole year and so taking some time off, reflecting, uh, right. you know, I was looking forward to sort of next year, but really just trying, trying to just take a break, trying really, but make it an effort not to do all that much. Are you succeeding in those tries or do you find yourself, uh, impulsively doing what might be classified as work? No, I, I took a week off last week. We went to uh, we went to Mexico last week, oh. uh, and so yeah, I was able to avoid uh, most work there. And then this week, it's just like you know, it's easing back into it. It's just uh, this week is like a you know half vacation, half working. I have like a I have a Substack essay that that I wrote, uh, but I didn't finish all the way. And if it was like a normal week, I would have finished it all the way. Uh, and then I did you know my links post for tomorrow and. Done a little bit of reading, but not like tons. So it's like, yeah, it's been like a light week. Yeah, yesterday I, I, I literally, I, I sounded as close to like, a, my voice sounded like as close to like a gremlin or something as it's ever sounded. Like I, I, I it sounded inhuman. Like my inability to like vocalize sounds that come across as emanating from a human being was just uh, decimated. So yeah, it was uh Kind of bad. I guess I've been somewhat insulated from uh, the uh, viruses and COVIDs and flu strains and stuff that I've heard and seen have been uh, circulating recently because, um, you know, on, on, a, on a typical day, I tend to like work on my own and not be exposed to that many people, although I you know, go out on occasion, but I also don't have uh, small children uh, running around me all the time to expose me to whatever... Uh, particles they're accumulating so i guess that might have uh that might have uh, protected me for a while but not for long as i discovered this week yeah kids are the vector uh, and kids are uh 
kids are getting sick. I mean, there's like, you know, this this year is supposed to be bad. I mean, I think that it's sort of a payback for the immune system for what they've done to the kids for the last uh, three years. So, yeah, now we're now they're getting hit by everything. Yeah, maybe so. You know, there was a um, there's a tradition here in Edinburgh, where I am now, for um, the New Year festivities. It's called uh, Hognomy, um, which I always mispronounce because it's just a strange word. Hogmany. Um, did I mispronounce it? Hogmany. Hogmany. Okay, my local companion just corrected me on the pronunciation. Um, Hogmanay, where uh, I think it's the day before New Year's Eve, so actually, t- you know, th- tomorrow, or that's actually technically today here in the UK, but um, you know, December thirtieth, I guess, it might even maybe might even be the 29th, They would hold a um, giant torch lit procession throughout Edinburgh. <laughs> that would be like one of the uh, precursor events for the actual New Year's um, Eve celebration. Um. Because uh, for whatever reason, maybe this is just like folklore. Maybe I'm—it's ta- uh, uh, like a cartoon version of Scottish culture that I've just picked up. But it seems like New Year's might actually be even more culturally significant in Scotland than Christmas. It's just like it's like a multi-day affair, um, and uh, one of the days was uh, has histor- traditionally been uh, centered around this uh, torch-lit uh, march through Edinburgh. <laughs> Um, that's been canceled the past couple years for the COVID stuff. And there was a uh, expectation that they would uh, resume it this year. And, uh, you know, when I got here, you know, the, the first thing that the cab driver, not to do a Tom Friedman thing, and I'm not making any larger points. So I guess I feel entitled to reference my conversation with the cab driver, but I was asking, you know, what's sort of notable or interesting about Scotland on, uh, during New Year's. He said that there's this, uh, torch lit procession, um, which seems uh, interesting. I did note that it probably would have uh, connotations in the United States that would make it not seem quite uh, so <laughs> uh, easily uh, politically permissible, um, which uh, he laughed at. But um, I, I had every expectation that they were going to hold it this year, and uh, maybe I would try to attend and even bear a torch myself. But uh, sadly, it was uh, canceled again this year, I, f- I discovered, because... Um, Basically, just overall bad uh, econ- economic conditions. Or at least that's the claim. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's uh, strange because, you know, I guess certain events that would have been almost like non-negotiably happening prior to COVID, um, now it's like because they've been interrupted by COVID, it's like less non-negotiable to have them or in other words like you can excuses which might not have seemed plausible to for example you know forego one of those traditional cultural events are um i guess you know seen as you know potentially acceptable now and they uh gave a whole new reason to uh, not have this uh torchlit procession so that's uh that's sad because that would have been Interesting to observe, I think. Did did they say they could like couldn't afford it, or they were like mourning the economy? Um, it was sort of vague. I mean, the statement that I saw by like the organization that runs it just basically said that you know due to uh, poor economic conditions in the UK, um, they were not <laughs> the able UK, to hold so it. It's not local. 
Well, I guess it's local as well. I don't know. I mean, it, it was, no, no, it was a very saying, vaguely worded statement. The problem is not local. So they say because of right. like not because our town is suffering like loss of revenue. It's like because of UK, the UK. So that sounds like they're like yeah. It was like for na- because of like national economic reasons. That's weird. Does the UK is the UK doing like are they canceling a lot of stuff over over the economy? I don't know. Um, That's strange, man. You know, uh, it's like they love you know, you know, festivals and such. I mean, <laughs> you know, like their economy isn't always great. Yeah, you know, this came around the time of, um, you know, when there was the kind of panic around the budget that was introduced by Liz Truss, who was prime minister oh, for about five minutes. Stupid, and then it was like in the aftermath of that. It's a political statement. Um, I don't know exactly if it's a political statement. Maybe we should do some journalism and figure out what exactly was the reason other than the very vague uh, rationale they gave. I almost wanted to be Amer- American, Americocentric and assume that it's because of Charlottesville. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's not completely impossible. That's my, that was my first thought when you said, uh, you know, American-centric. I mean, they pay attention to this stuff. How big is this uh, city? Is this a big town? Um, no, it's not huge. Edinburgh was, uh, it's oh, not even that... the biggest in Scotland. I think it's, uh, Glasgow's the biggest. What's, this, uh-huh. what's the uh, population? Uh, metro area is like 900,000. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, are you... Um, like the, like the, the only... Uh, like the only um, uh, here's the only explanation. We are disappointed to confirm that due to the current economic climate and the drop in available funding, we are unable to go ahead okay. with this event. Dro- drop in funding. So it looks like they ran right. out of money. But I, I guess so. And, and, apparently, and they're, they're kind of scaling down the festival overall as well. So is this like a big festival. I mean, this is a big festival that like everyone cares about it. Yeah, I think so. Huh. It's sort of like very unique to Scotland. It's like sort of somewhat internationally sort of known as a, uh, unique sort of Scots- Scottish cultural tradition. Well, Google it. I mean, there must be something on Google, right? There must be some report. Journals, I'm sure somebody's reporting something. I have Googled it. I mean, it, I haven't seen a whole lot of, uh, I haven't seen a whole lot of like I haven't seen much like investigative reporting on the actual reasons for the cancellation. Like if you go to the Scots the Scotsman, which is the main newspaper in Scotland, it's kind of just uh, you know sort of speculative and like there's not a whole lot of substantive reporting on why it was canceled. They just kind of take them for the they kind of like take the reasoning at face value, and maybe that is the reason, just like a just budgetary constraints. But it seems like the type of thing that like it would be societally prioritized. Maybe pre-COVID, so even if there was a downturn, like it's not like there, ha- it's not like there haven't been um, economic doldrums in the UK in the past. So somebody, like uh, so somebody has put a, put a link in the ch- in the chat. They're saying it seems like it's like it says it's still going on. Back with a bang. Uh, they've Edinburgh's Hogmanay. Well, the Hogmanay festival is still going on. Like the overall uh, like three day uh, event, but the torchlit uh, procession is it was canceled. Okay, is that a big? That's a big part of it. Yeah, it's sort of like it sort of like kicks off the three day festival. I see. Or had. Okay. Yeah, like I'm going. To, uh, I'm still going to like a uh, on New Year's Eve during the evening. I'm going to go to like a uh, sort of brass concert in one of the cathedrals. That's like part of Hogmanay festival. 
but this uh, this this particular event within the wider festival has been cancelled. But thanks, thanks, uh, thanks for trying to debunk me, commenter. <laughs> uh, what are you there for? Justification? Um. Well, my my girlfriend uh, <laughs> lives here. She goes to the University of Edinburgh, mm-hmm. so I came for the holidays. Mm-hmm. You see? Uh, okay. So, by the way, did you see Andrew the Andrew Tate stuff? Um, you know actually, she Dutch? just uh, she she referenced that to me uh, briefly a little while ago, but I haven't looked into it. What actually happened? So do you know how? Do you know anything about this guy? I know. I know enough to know who he is. Yeah. Uh, so you know, he was fighting with Greta the last few days. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, and then uh, I was caught up to speed. I, I was off Twitter for a couple of days trying to uh, trying to recuperate. But so that was that. But when I logged back on, that was the first update I was given that he had gotten into a fight with Greta well, about penis the size. It knows the content you crave. Uh, so yeah, he's, um, uh, yeah, so he's just got arrested. They raided his, he's got a place in Romania, him and his brother for human trafficking. And like, you know, from what I've seen, it's like they manipulated these women, uh, and like, you know, what to promise them, they'd take them to, you know, UK and they were like, uh, uh, like holding them against their will at this place. And, uh, you know, like so using psychological, I mean, that makes me suspicious, psychological pressure, but also surveillance and like physical force. And so there's like rape and there's like, tra- you know, human trafficking. You know, this guy was, I, I didn't know this until today. He got, he apparently is like, he was like uh, running like uh, cab girls. He was basically uh, like an internet pornographer, basically. I did not know that. I thought he was just. Oh, like, I didn't know that. I thought he was just sort of like a masculinity influencer. Yeah, I mean, that's like, that's, I think that's how he started. Uh, let me see. Let me make sure that I'm getting this right. Well, that kind of uh, unfortunately uh, validates every stereotype one might have about why you'd just randomly relocate to a compound in Eastern Europe. Uh, so yeah, so here's a, I mean, there's an article that said they made millions. He made, that's how he made his money. Apparently made millions by requiring his Mepcam models to scam men by telling lies about their lives, medical emergencies, dying parents, eviction. So this is a, yeah. So this is, this is what the internet says. He got it. That's how he got rich in the first place. And then became, I guess, like a masculinity, uh, guru. Uh, and so, well, it's interesting because <clears throat> I don't think I'd, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is still a mess. Um, I don't think I'd ever, I hadn't heard of him until around this past summer when he was first banned from social media. Um, or I think he was banned from Instagram. I think he might've already been banned from Twitter for a while, but, uh, banned from, it was, it was banned from Instagram, which is like his biggest platform at the time, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. And part of the rationale that was sort of concocted by, uh, you know, Meta, the parent company, was, uh, had to do with these complaints that were coming in from parents that, uh, younger boys, or not even parents, but like all kinds of like online safety people, teachers, whoever, that, um, his clips were getting, getting so ubiquitous and showing up in the feeds of so many like younger boys that like they had to like make a new rule to ban him just having to do with like the reach of his content not that he was doing anything that was necessarily against the terms of service but that like he was bad and a bad influence and like something needed to be done because he was reaching so many kids now it seems very plausible based on what i've you know come to know since then that he actually was having a gigantic reach um especially among like you know younger demographics of like boys and stuff which you know can be good or bad i guess in terms in terms of how you think of his uh personal uh virtue but um 
Yeah, apparently it was so, but it was so alarming to some of these people that like a whole new uh, category of violation had to be concocted to purge him from Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's just it's too it's too funny. I mean, it's too funny. Like, you know, people say that the sort of the fighting with Greta sort of reminded Romania who was in the country. Some people are saying he ordered like a pizza uh, in Romania and then he like, when he, you know, and he like, he told the person, you know, I didn't watch this, but I uh, heard that he uh, told the person, uh, you know, don't recycle them just to like, you know, just like try to taunt Greta. And some people are saying, I, th- I think this is just speculation, probably not true, that like the Romanian letters on the pizza box like ticked off the authorities he was still in the country. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, like, I, mean, I see the, one of the, like, the viral tweets reporting this is like this account, Pop Base, which is just like an entertainment account where they're saying, Andrew Tate's video in response to Greta Thunberg allowed Romanian authorities to confirm he was in the country and arrest him in, in human tra- trafficking investigation due to the pizza chain shown in the two-minute rant. Well, okay, ba- like, what's the rep- How do you know that pop base, which is ba- probably in like LA or something? Um, and like, are are we assuming that Romania, which uh, happens to be a NATO ally, is so yeah. incompetent that they needed a uh, pizza box to tell them that he was like somewhere at his compound in Romania? Like, was he thought to be on the run? I don't remember him concealing the fact that he was in Romania. It's, you know, it's, uh, I remember him being boastful of it. No. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I haven't been following him actually. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't either. I just like when he pops on the news, like in this big stuff. Uh, you know, that's what I see. But no, I, I haven't been paying attention. I, I look forward to like real reporting. Uh, so you know, I don't, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about it. But like you know, it's obviously fascinating. People tell me. Uh, people tell me he. Um, People tell me he's like the biggest person like in the world for like young people. I don't know. Any, I don't know anything about it. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I was watching this. Um, I, I watched this video where uh, it was like um, two British guys went to um, my girlfriend actually showed it to me yesterday or the day before. Very good. It was actually, it was two uh, British guys went as tourists uh, in like August, September of last year or the, this year. They went to Afghanistan. You like, and you would enjoy this. Um, one of the things that they found, like this one guy found, was he went through like a dumpster of discarded stuff that the Americans left behind, like you know, office chairs and uh, staplers and random supplies and stuff. And one of the uh, one of the discarded items that the guy came across were a bunch of binders on on. Um, Gender equity among uh, Afghan far- for uh, Afghan uh, agriculture. I saw this. That was yeah, produ- yeah. produced by the Americans. You saw that? Uh, yeah. This. You're saying someone was looking through the wreckage of the uh, Afghanistan uh, thing. Yeah, they were. Like, they went to like a year after the withdrawal. These like this British yeah. guy went there as a tourist and was yeah, just sifting through some of the stuff in a dumpster. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. You didn't need to. You didn't need to go to the dumps. Yeah. I mean, we, there was reports on this stuff, but yeah, I, I remember seeing the video. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying, like he he actually personally saw. Disco- right. I mean, as like a like hit hammer home the symbolic value. He actually uh-huh. saw binders in the garbage of like the gender equity plans that were being distributed by USAID for um, Afghan uh, agriculture. Um, but anyway, I, I mentioned that because. The um, this like duo of guys who were there, they talked to Andrew Tate, and they were they told him that like they had been 
they somehow found this like uh, you know rural Afghan sort of I don't know tribesman type guy. And we're talking to him, and the one guy that the one figure that this like very remote Afghan brought up as like a big influence on him that he really loved was Andrew Tate. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that sort of makes sense. I mean, it is sort of, there's a lot of sort of overlap between him and rural Afghanistan. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. I, I would want to read something. I mean, maybe it's out there and I just haven't like really looked for it, but I'd love to see something on just like, like the mechanics of how he got his content so mega ubiquitous. Um, yeah, especially he's, like he's penetrating certain demographics where it's like, um, you know, like a guaranteed sort of follower base for, you know, decades and decades. If you're getting like boys when they're 12. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to see some, I don't know, like, is it McGinney? Like, it's like so under the radar. It's like not something that I think, like journalists, I mean, they write it that it's like all, uh, you know, it's all just hit pieces and sort of, you know, tut tutting and being scared of like, you know, I want to read like a real sort of story on this. Um, I don't know. I don't know anybody who like, uh, does he have like a podcast or something? He's, he's entertaining. I mean, have you seen him? Have you seen his like uh, videos? Um, I don't know. I, I've seen just like small clips that he's done. Um, like he, he basically just publishes in like TikTok sized clips. I mean, maybe that's, uh, he, he probably publishes a variety of different formats, I guess. But like the the stuff that really seems to penetrate are those just like you know one minute twenty five second clips where he does like a little, you know, well crafted rant about some, you know, uh, gender related issue or like the proper role of men vis a vis women or vice versa, and so forth. So I've seen a couple of I, I watched a couple of those just like when he got banned over the summer just to like understand who he was. But beyond that, no, I haven't seen much. Mm. It's also yeah. weird that he's he's like a he's like, like partially British, I think. Yeah, I thought it, I thought it was like yeah, full British. I, I didn't know where he where is he from. I thought it was British. Well, I, I think he's like half American or something. Like uh, Wikipedia says, he's American hyphen British, and he was born in DC. Ah, uh, uh, okay. The son of a white English catering assistant and a black American chess player. Oh wow. Oh. Black, oh, I, wasn't he a uh, black American chess player? I remember. So that's, those are, you, you probably, uh, those are some good genes, as you <laughs> would like to acknowledge. Yeah, yeah, chess player. Wasn't he? Uh, yeah, his, his okay, th- th- this is actually pretty interesting. His father, Emery Tate Jr., was a chess grandmaster. Uh-huh. And he was a trailblazer for uh, African-American chess. <laughs> And he died like so international like, master. Yeah, and he died pretty young. He's, he's, uh, he's, got, he's, got his own he's got his own Wikipedia page. Oh man, yeah. you gotta look at his dad's face. Like he looks, looks like Edward Sadat. Yeah. Well, he's full African. Well, that's odd, but then because he's full, this says he's full African American, so he doesn't look like any oh, well, Egyptian descent. Have, yeah, European. Uh, yeah. Jeans. Uh, he served. Yeah, the but he, Air Force. He was. Excelled. He died. He died during a chest. T- Tournament. He had a heart attack. Alabama Senate passed a resolution celebrating his life and legacy. There you go. Uh, <laughs> he overcame racial division. <laughs> well, you know, the guy's got to, I mean, Andrew, the son, he's got to, you know, he clearly has some uh, some sort of uh, genre of intelligence to have gotten the notoriety that he's uh, accumulated. 
Yeah, I think that's right. No, you could tell he's smart. You could tell he's smart by watching his. Uh, you know, you could tell he's got like you know he's sort of he's ideological. I mean, you could he could uh, like he could be like you know like these people like Steven Crowder. Like he's like he, if he just wanted to do politics, like Andrew Tate would be like great at politics. But like his thing is not politics; it's just like a side thing. Like he's like he's like above these people, right? So if he just wanted to do like the anti woke like on PC stuff, like he could have excelled at that. Like he just, but he just was like you know something bigger. He had a lifestyle brand and just did that sort of on the side. So no, he's he's unquestionably very talented. I don't think anybody can deny that. Okay, I, this actually just apparently a Romanian newspaper did report that the police were partly tipped off to his whereabouts by the tweet response video to Greta Thunberg. It's possible. I mean, it's possible. Like cops, you know, they just forget, and then like you know, it's Greta becomes like a new story, and then people like you know remember. Well, yeah, it, it did seem plausible to me that like you know, it might sort of revive interest in. Uh, uh, you know, prosecuting him for the, because apparently this is like a long-standing investigation that was apparently prompted by the United States. I mean, of course, right? So uh, the Romanian police seems like it's sort of a... Well, a someone uh, writes in the comments, he published himself being really disgusting with a woman, half-naked, very obedient woman in bed. He's gross. Okay. Well, was this just recently or is this someone... Okay. This is someone, in our, someone in our chat <coughs> said this. Said the, I, don't know, I don't know if it's been... Uh, Let's see. Yeah. This is funny. Another, another sort funny. of strange thing is, like, they sort of, uh, he seemed like he was, okay, so his compound in Romania was raided in April after the U.S. embassy sort of alerted local police about uh, American women potentially being held against their will at the compound. Um, and I, I don't know if that was ever proven. I think they might have actually not been held against their will at the compound, I, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, you know, human but, trafficking. But I remember that being. I remember that being cited as like sort of a justification for why you should be banned from social media, right? Like that an investigation was launched that maybe wasn't borne out by the facts, but nonetheless, that like is a blemish on his record and therefore like justifies why he should not be allowed on Instagram. Yeah. Which is yeah, kind of dubious. I, whenever I see charges or accusations of like human trafficking, I'm just like very suspicious. Like to get an adult, like to just like be trafficked, like against their will, like for something they don't want to do. It's you know, it's not common and it's not easy, right. Like you could say anything is trafficking, right? Like you could say, oh, come become a webcam girl, right? And you could you could pretend to be like that. One thing that like you know the statement I read put up by the. Uh, police in Romania. It's like, you know, they, these men were like, part of like the charge, this wasn't like the illegal part, but like they like pretended to be their boyfriends and like tried to like, you know, act like they were in love with them. Um, and it put in parentheses, like the lover boy method. <laughs> and so like part of it, it's like, you know, they're, they're manipulating men and they're manipulating women. And like, who knows like how much of it is like really criminal, how much of it is just like, you know, they were out to get this guy. And like, you know, he treated women badly and like some women could complain and, you know, so just like the, you know, the whole concept, I think is just, it, it, you know, it's very iffy. I, yeah. I, mean, I think I've seen you tweet about this, but it, it does seem like there's, um, it, it's one of the few issues where there seems to be like cross ideological, uh, paranoia permitted. Yeah. Or like, or a more moral, moral panic being stoked for like maybe different reasons across the spectrum. Yeah. But um, with like sort of equal vigor, like it doesn't, on, really on, seem, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem equal. It seems like the right is like very into like like the Elon Musk thing. There's just one woman who keeps popping up in my timeline with uh, she's got like short white hair. 
Uh, and she's like, claims, you know, she says she's a human trafficking victim. And she's like, always like having these like stupid Elon Musk tweets that go viral. Like, thank Elon Musk for cleaning up Twitter. And like, you know, that Elon Musk will often respond like, oh yeah, you know, we're, we're doing it. And so like, they're all like, like, you know, it's like the QAnon thing. What is the QAnon thing? It's all, uh, it's all, you know, try, like, uh, like, you know, this cabal of child molesters and like, that's like the people Trump is like that. So it's like a very big it's like a very big part of sort of the right and sort of how they, you know, how they see the world. Well, yeah, I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that. I mean, like fundamentally QAnon, and maybe I'm not versed enough in like the wider mythology of QAnon, but I always thought like the fundamental like demonic accusation was, or like the fundamental accusation of demonic conduct was that like satanic perverts were trafficking children, right? Yeah. Yeah, like I under the auspices of the Democratic Party and whatever. Yeah, I, I, I uh, you know, I but it's, it's, it's weird though. It's weird though because like prior, I guess maybe prior to 2016, to the extent that I had any awareness of like anti-human trafficking and advocacy, it would have been more coded as like a liberal NGO type of thing. Like it wouldn't have been anything that you would necessarily think of a, as at all like a right-wing niche and it's like, issue. It's, yeah, uh, you know, it's like it's very, uh, you know, it's like a way to get. Um, like the border too. It's like a way to like just like talk about immigration, right? It's like they use that because they don't want to talk. You know, they want to think. You know, they want to close the, the border. I was listening once to uh, Alex Jones was on uh, Joe Rogan podcast, and like Alex Jones was going on like, "Oh, they are destroying us." You know, they are the demons are taking their doing as Alex Jones say. And like Rogan at one point is like, "You know, who's well, you keep saying they? Who are they?" And then uh, Alex Jones is like, "The pedophiles." And then Rogan is yeah. like, wait, what? How did they get all the power? <laughs> like, like, <laughs> and how does every how does every pedophile like have like a centralized command structure? <laughs> yeah, I know. It seems <laughs> like they're not the most well organized group. Oh, I mean, apparently they are. The ones who get caught are the dumb ones. I guess the the smart ones are are running the country. Yeah, like I almost remember like being in college where there would be like these groups that occasionally would have like you know a display on campus or something where it would be like raising awareness of human trafficking and it would be like the same like be like amnesty international types or um again just kind of like do good or liberals who aren't always wrong about stuff and maybe like it was right to raise uh, awareness about certain things but it was like uh the, the ideological inflection as best as i can recall was about how like uh you know predatory ma- masculinity was allowing for you know, young girls to be sexually trafficked and preyed upon. And so it was being opposed on that ground as if there's any like discernible ideological through line, whereas it doesn't seem like opposing like uh, predatory toxic masculinity yeah. is really why the right is so exercised about it. I mean, you know, I think like Congress like passes like this stuff. I'm like trafficking all the time and I'm sure it's bipartisan, but if you just like people on like Twitter, I think just because liberals have so many moral panics, like, you know, none of them, like they can't all like, focus on all of them at the same time and like conservatives just have you know child trafficking really and then like, even the even the stuff about like you know the uh the drag queens and stuff like that i mean that's all made like you know that they're groomers that you know they're, they're taking care of children so like it's really just like, it's like a way to like the one thing like they agree with the mainstream model of like sexual morality that they can like focus on but then it's like an excuse to go after like lgbt in schools and then like the border it's like all these other things that they care about and all it's sort of all gets the border like, yeah the <laughs> pedophiles border. flooding across the border yeah i mean you, i was watching this uh you know the clip of like laura logan this other day i mean she's just insane i mean she's this woman is insane i mean she was a 60 minutes reporter yeah 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 I, laura logan I, 
And she's like, yes. She's like, uh, you know, where are the tens of millions of children that disappear in America, you know, every year? Like the elites who are taking, you know, who are taking their blood because they think it makes them. I mean, like, like you, you don't think, I didn't know she was this insane. I mean, the Fox News, well, Fox News fired her. Uh, oh, they fired recently. her for being crazy? Well, yeah, basically they fired her for being crazy, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I, think that, I think she might have even gotten dumped by like, like she went someplace else after Fox News. Like a Newsmax type place, if I'm remembering correctly, and I think even they got rid of her. Uh-huh. She got just because, got... like, she keeps going off on just making wild, unsubstantiated claims all the time. Yeah, um, yeah she's crazy. But one. another thing about, and I, maybe I should look more deeply into the issue, and maybe you have, but like one thing that kind of makes me sort of reflexively skeptical about any claim involving human trafficking. Not that I'm denying that it exists, but it's almost like a it's like a recent coinage, so it can like mean kind of anything, or um, it's like you know the, the the definition seems nebulous about like what human trafficking is this uh, is, and it's like you know it seems like it was coined by these like NGOs uh, relatively recently, sure and now everybody's yeah. right adopted it. But yeah, also like, like whenever I see data around it, it's always by like these advocacy organizations. Like I don't see any impartial empirical data on the prevalence of the phenomenon. Yeah. Well, a lot of it is just like women voluntarily prostituting themselves. Yeah, they made this thing where, like, if a woman goes from like a third world country to like a first world country and like you know just works as a prostitute, yeah, they call that human trafficking. It's like politically correct. You don't want to blame the women. So, like, if men are like involved in like organizing it, like it's a way to like go after the men and like treat the women as victims. Like Reason Magazine, um, I think there's a woman named Elizabeth Nolan Brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like her. Written, I know she's written on this. Yeah. So like, I mean, like it's actually, I mean, it's very, I mean, it's maybe it happens, but it's like very hard to traffic like an adult human, like against their will and make them do stuff. Right. I'm like, okay, you can like uh, take away their passport or whatever you could, I mean, you could do that sometimes like that, but it's like, it's not the easiest, you know, it's a special circumstance. It's not like the easiest thing in the world to just, you know, control people like that. Yeah. Elizabeth Nolan Brown's, I haven't read her any of her stuff in a while. I should maybe uh, <laughs> delve back into it, but like a, a reason why like people like her are necessary and like why you need just like doctrinaire libertarians like in the room yeah. is because they have like a particular eye for like sifting through some of this kind of nonsense and paranoia that like you might not get on the left or right or, or like the you know the more classic left or right like um i think it was 2018 when uh, congress basically by uh, unanimously passed a law that essentially criminalized um basically forced Craigslist to take off its um, like romantic encounters section because on on grounds of human trafficking, um, and it even like it even like disadvantaged like the Village Voice, which always had a, a section for that, if I'm remembering correctly. You know, there was a funny uh, there was a funny uh, uh, there was a law passed uh, it was signed by uh, W uh, like you know 15 years ago or something, and it was like you know they were worried about like men who were like finding like mail order brides. I guess I don't know if people still do this, but used to be much. Used to hear a lot more about it, um, and like it was like the idea, like I don't know, like you couldn't like it like put a limit on how many like spousal visas you could get from abroad. So like you couldn't marry like I don't know, it's like more than two or more than one or maybe more than two uh, women, and like you know get them a visa as, as you're. So it's like yeah, this was like who knows? Like this is, I doubt this was like a, you know, had it was a real problem. But yeah, it was all it was portrayed as like you know, you know, stopping human trafficking. Yeah, this law was um, FAF, FAF, the acronym is uh, FOSTA-SESTA, if that rings a bell, to, uh, signed into law by Trump, April 2018, passed by the Senate 97 to 2, House 388 to 25. So yeah, you know, pretty much total unanimity. Um, 
because like who could be opposed to measures to stop sex trafficking of vulnerable uh, populations and yet you know basically caused um you know uh, the, the 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 first response to it that i can recall was like you know craigslist took down the uh, portal through which you know uh, adults were known to have consensual sexual uh, encounters. Okay, so I looked this up, this thing that Bush signed in 2008. It was after two women were killed by their American husbands in Washington State. Uh, What was that bill called? It it was, let me see, President Bush has signed legislation to protect mail-order brides. Uh, Two women from other countries were slain in Washington State. Uh, Blah, blah, blah. Uh, Both murdered by men. Uh... They must be provided with a document in their native language outlining their rights in the United States under immigration law and domestic violence statutes. Uh, they have the protection. Is, um, is it the International Broker Regulation Act of 2005? No, there was two. This is from, I'm reading this article from 2008. It doesn't say the name of the law. Uh, Prospective brides will also have to be aware of any criminal records their husband had. <laughs> what? So the government would tell, like, your mail order bride, like, oh, this guy's been, you know, a rapist or something. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I think, I think, I think you're, t- I think this law you're talking about was, uh, it was enacted in 2006. No, I'm looking at the Seattle Times. Oh, it's 2006. I misread. You're right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, you know, because um, that was really what Congress and Bush uh, ought to have been focused on <laughs> at that time, uh, making yeah. you know, uh, uh, heightening the burdens of uh, mail order bride acquisitions in yeah. America. Because you know, Iraq was going really well. Yeah, there was nothing else. Yeah, he had nothing else on his plate. Yeah. Um, question I had for you: um, I read like one of your, I guess, sort of year end, sort of like reflective pieces lately. I forget which one it was. But one of your um, sort of realizations was that maybe you're more, uh, correct me if I'm wrong or if this is not like an accurate summarization, but like you, you found yourself more alienated from the right recently. Yeah, that, that's true. People can um, see sort of on my Twitter, I go through these, I go through these phases where people, yeah. annoy, some people annoy me more than others. Because I remember like last year was sort of similar for you like, uh, in terms of alienation from the right on the vaccination stuff. But now, because do you, do you think that's kind of like grown into like uh, not just sort of um, antipathy toward like the right wing view, you know, generally speaking on like one particular category of, of issues, which is maybe like a temporary one, because like it's not going to always be the case that like whether to get a vaccination for a particular disease is like a, the animating issue of the day. Um, has it like, it's, would you say it's like broadened out into like a more of like a sort of uh, overarching sort of philosophical critique or is it more just still well, I mean, I circumstantial always, based on like a, like a basket of certain issues? Well, I mean, I always had a sort of, uh, the, the, I sort of had problems with sort of social conservatism, um, but like, you know, there was the Dobbs decision, like, okay, like, you know, sort of, that was foreseeable. This Canadian euthanasia stuff, all, I'm going to, I have an essay on this is going to come out next week. I mean, it's just, the coverage has been just so like, it's been bad. I mean, it's been just, I've seen the right-wing media go crazy. I mean, uh, about this, like, most of their claims are just, they're not true. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're exaggerating. They're, they're, and, uh, remind, remind me what the, what the situation is in Canada with the so Canada, policy. Um, so Canada, I haven't really been following it lately. You know, they, they have a euthanasia law, which allows a doctor to, uh, you know, put, uh, give you... An is this nationwide or is it province? No, it's, it's nationwide. It's nationwide. Okay. The Supreme Court, like they had a, like a Supreme Court ruling saying you have to do this, but then they've been expanding it. So they're going to, 
like you know they got rid of like it doesn't have to be a terminal illness now it can just be any illness um, and they're going to expand it to mental illness next year and um you know there's and there's uh um and there's like just talks like uh, like some parliamentary reports it's like you know thinking about emancipated minors and you know like an emanc- emancipated minor is a very rare thing it's like a minor with like you know no connection to their parents so it's like it's something that hasn't happened that might not even be and it would probably but if you look at actual the numbers you look at the numbers of the euthanasia part and so like basically the story on right-wing media and this is i think is an important issue like this death with death with dignity issue i think is just very you know fundamentally important um if you look at right-wing media, uh, it's like, you know, they're basically euthanizing, you know, like every depressed teenager that like walks in, you know, to a clinic in Canada. And it's not true. You look at the numbers for this thing. It's like, you know, there's 10,000 uh, uh, cases in 2021. The average age is like 77. Uh, like, you know, so, uh, like, they, you know, the, the vast majority have, you know, cancer or some other serious disease. Uh, there's like 100 in the whole country under 45 who had and like, who knows, like how bad those people's conditions were. So like, it's very unlikely that any of them were just like, you know, some people who were just had no, uh, you know, who, who just like were suffering some temporary crisis. I'm pretty sure a hundred cases, that's like very rare. They were people uh, who probably had really terrible, you know, conditions. I haven't been able to find a single case that like reflects like the, what the right wing thinks that the, um, that this uh, sort of program is like, there was a case that uh, reports like a, a couple of years ago, that this like depressed girl got raped in the Netherlands and then you know took advantage of their euthanasia program. Wasn't true. It was fake news. I mean, people were like tweeting me at that. I mean, the whole, the whole history of, you know, youth legalized euthanasia. There's never been a case like that. If they had a real case, they would, they would show it. Right. It was just, the girl did that. There was a real girl and she was on social media, like saying she wanted to die. And she did kill herself, but it had nothing to do with the, um, the uh, Netherlands program. And she so, didn't go through a formal legal process. She didn't go through a formal legal Exactly. So it has nothing to do with you know, legalized euthanasia. If they could find one case like this, like, you know, some of these countries have had uh, euthanasia for decades. If they could find, like, you know, they think there's a slippery slope. If they could find one case like this, I think they would have, you know. Well, uh, Oregon has had it since the 90s, hasn't it? Yeah. I think there's but some it's, difference it's, between yeah. Oregon. And one of the reasons they're flipping out about the Canadian one is uh, Oregon will let you, will let the doctor prescribe the medicine and you have to take it at home. I guess mm-hmm. is the way it works, and Canada they will they will do it for you. Now the the numbers in Canada are much larger than Oregon, and so like you know some people say, well, this is the state going too far. It's like sanctioning it. My, my you know my response would be maybe it's meeting a need. Like some people just don't have the courage to do it themselves, and like you know I don't think that's I don't think it's necessarily wrong. Like you can't just look at the numbers and say you know it could be not like it's, you can't look at the numbers and say because they're bigger in Canada than anywhere else it's not meeting a need because the numbers aren't like you know huge compared to how much suffering there is out there it's also incredibly arbitrary i mean i had forgotten this about the oregon oregon uh law because i remember i I think i might have even done like a school project on this in high school or i looked into it related to something that i was doing a current events type thing in high school um and i remember thinking then and i also i think now that it's incredibly arbitrary to like somehow claim that the state is not lending its direct endorsement to the kind of execution of the euthanasia if uh, the doctor simply prescribes the medication, but then it's required that the patient administer it to themselves. Like, what? It's almost like a face saving thing to give like plausible deniability rather than like a rational uh, policy measure in that sense. Uh, at least in terms of like. 
like that, like a narrow sort of administrator, uh, administrative like uh, component, because like if it fundamentally it's been established that the patient has actively sought it, is uh, providing their consent, you know, fulsomely, and like there's no doubt as to whether the the patient, you know, consciously desires this to be done, then, um, then the idea that like they should be be able to go through this state. Uh, prescribed process, but then not have, not be, uh, not not have it be allowed to be min- administered to them, you know, with their consent. It just doesn't make any sense. That there's no ethical um, boundary that's being preserved there. It's like a, it's, it's like, like an arbitrary sort of like, uh, you know, uh, procedural or mechanistic boundary that they're trying to preserve for some strange reason. Yeah, a lot of things. I mean, a lot of things are like this. It's a, uh, you know, it's like sort of a political compromise. So Canada I mean, has gone farther. I, I think it, it's, it's either the only country or one of the only countries. You know, and like the arguments are like so stupid. I mean, like, you know, it just, it just pisses me off so much. And the, the one of the arguments is like, oh, some people are like doing it because they're poor. Uh, and it's like, look, there's there's poor people, right? And it's like, it's obvious we accept that there are poor people in the world, right? Uh, so it's like you can't be like okay, like you know, if you gave every, if you gave someone a million dollars, like their life is going to be worth living. It's like you're just giving people an extra choice. So if you want to expand the welfare state, fine, but don't use this you know euthanasia as an excuse to do that. It's like these people are they're purposely going out. They're like activists, they're like disability activists, like going out there who like don't like the don't like the law and are like purposely going and like trying to like get doctors to like agree with them to euthanize them and then going to the media and saying, oh, all I need is like you know, counseling, and then they're trying to euthanize them. And so the whole thing is fake. And, you know, the, the impression they were giving was true, that, like, this was, like, a common thing that, like, all doctors were offering in Canada. The numbers would be much larger. You wouldn't have, you know, only a 100-something cases of people under 45, right? And they, you know, there's, it's, it's a rare thing, and it's a thing that's mostly people who are very sick and very old. Uh, so, yeah, the program... What is the deal with... Um... I mean, I could see it opening a whole another can of worms, though, for now mental health to be the an acceptable category of like a terminal illness or like one of the illnesses that can allow for a patient to seek assisted suicide. I mean, I have to. Uh, I, I again, I haven't looked into it to, my, to myself, but like, does that raise any uh, qualms with you at all that they've broadened it out to such a like an amorphous category of potential illness? I mean, you know, a little bit, but, you know, I don't think this stuff is enforceable, like, because, like, you know, you could go to a doctor and you could say, I have chronic pain, right? You can't, like, disprove that, right? Um, and you could say it's mental illness. So usually people, mental illness is correlated with all these uh, other physical traits. So, like, you know, if you, you know, I, like, I wouldn't, like, be totally opposed to, like, a cooling off period or something. You know, I'm open to the idea that some people have such bad mental conditions that they you know, are not really solvable. I mean, that's tragically might be, might be. Well, I'm, because I guess it, it depends on like the evaluative process, right? So you would have to have pretty strong safeguards. I mean, I, mean, I don't know the specifics here, but um, I mean, you'd hope that Canada would have, you know, pretty stringent uh, protocols. But like you could imagine just in theory, right? Like, I don't know, a 20 year old um, having sort of like a psychic breakdown, um, Thinking that you know his his life is just irreparably uh, ruined by their uh, onset of mental illness, they can't see a way out. They even maybe go through six months of uh, the required uh, procedure, and uh, meaning ahead of the actual administration of the euthanasia, 
and they're you know they kill them they're able to obtain you know state assisted euthanasia by their time they're around 20, 22 or twenty three and you know you could imagine that same person um, as I think is often the case with people in their um, you know twenties especially um, you know with uh, conditions there even are certain conditions uh, in terms of you know mental health or psychiatric conditions that only really um, uh, present in the uh, people's 20s. Yeah. So you can imagine a person like that, you know, being utterly convinced that euthanasia is um, the only, you know, rational course for them. But then, you know, if they had actually just uh, sought out for another five, seven, nine years or something, they actually would have um, basically uh, transcended what they thought was this like fatal illness and uh, would would go on to leave like a large lead, like a largely productive or even like, you know, exceptionally productive life. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's possible. I don't think that, uh, you know, I don't think that this is going to be a Susan. Look, I mean, look at, look at the, how much bad press I tried to find one defense of the Canadian euthanasia program as practiced now, which, you know, as practiced now just applies to, uh, uh, you know, mostly just, you know, it's all just physical illness and it's mostly uh, old and sick people. And I tried to find one defense of it. It's not, it's getting tons and tons of bad press. Right. Um, and so like, the idea that like doctors are going to like, you know, like are going to be able to euthanize, you know, healthy, otherwise healthy 20 year olds and like get away with that and like not have that be like the biggest scandal in the world. Like, I, I just doubt it. Um, so, you know, I think it would probably be used in only the most extreme cases, I would guess, you know, I would be fine with like a cooling off period or something. But yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I'm not that I'm not that, you know, I'm not that invested in either way. I mean, about the mental health uh, you know, about the, the mental health expansion. I just want to defend the program as it exists now. Um, and so yeah, yeah. The things people are saying about it are, are false. So, but yeah, the broader point, yeah, the broader point is I'm just, you know, I'm just sort of <laughs> upset with conservatives on this stuff. And so, you know, it like, doesn't matter. Like, I'm upset with conservatives. Like, who cares? It's just like, you know, <laughs> it's just like sort of just, you know, just my sort of political development for people who are interested in that kind of thing. Yeah. Sorry if I just coughed <laughs> Discussedly into the uh, microphone. Um, just an no, indication of how uh, kind of cross-cutting the consensus apparently is on this. I just looked up a uh, August 2022 uh, AP article with the headline is uh, in quotes, disturbing, um, colon, experts troubled by Canada's euthanasia laws. Oh, so that's yeah. how they frame it. Oh, oh, yeah. This is the other thing about uh, the conservatives on Twitter. And I probably should put too much into these people but it's like you trust like the liberals like after covid and like you know they're gonna you know like they think they're gonna kill them all off but it's like like the liberals are complaining like the the washington post like the ap like you know there's disability activists on the left i mean like oh yeah the left doesn't the left isn't you know very into this i mean this isn't very into this either and it's just like sort of there's just this right-wing paranoia uh, about this that really you sort of gets me you're right it's bipartisan which is why uh, you know, which is why I've got to write the, uh, I've got to write this essay. All right. Um, let's do a quick, uh, Ukraine war update, which is obligatory for us, I guess. And then I see Matt's in the queue and he could give us maybe some on the ground, uh, Romania oh, updates. Romania. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, as something I, I saw today, which I couldn't help but comment on. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but like there was like, you know, pro Ukraine Twitter was in a fit of rage over this New York times headline. You see this? Yeah. Um, hard, the, 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 the New York Times headline from you know, dated December 29th is 
or, or 28th is hardline positions by Russia and Ukraine dim hope for peace talks. Now, most people didn't even read it. I doubt Gary Kasparov, who was screaming about it, even read <laughs> the article. Um, but, you know, that's the type of person, you know, and their uh, fellow travelers who were uh, outraged. And I guess the idea is that if you use the term hard line to describe Ukraine's position, that's a value judgment, meaning that means that you're described, the New York Times is describing Ukraine's position as bad by being hard line, which I don't really get um, because it seems like a val, a fund, like an intrinsically value neutral description or, or at least there's no intrinsic value attached to the term hard line, right? So you could imagine like taking a hard line position in favor of a righteous cause or in favor of like a despicable cause. Um, but, you know, they were, they were going absolutely wild over it. And if you read the article, not only are they saying that Russia is also uh, adop- adopting a hard line position on, you know, potential negotiations, which are now basically moot. Um, uh, they're kind of, the, the, in the article, they kind of go to great lengths to kind of portray Ukraine as like the superior, superior moral actor. Um, they just use the, I mean, so the grievance that people who were, of course, expressing on social media without having read it, or maybe they did read it, I don't know, is all about this term hard line. And so, I mean, it just, it, it and yet like the objective evidence shows that the position of Ukraine has gotten more hardline. I mean, in the article, which people maybe forget, but, um, but you know, really should be stressed. And I, I, I wish more reporting has, has been done on this. Like I've done a little bit of myself by trying to track down uh, uh, Fiona Hill, which I've saved for uh, another uh, project but, 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 and haven't reported full yet. Um, but, you know, Ukrainian negotiations, and this is how they put it in the New York Times article. In late March, weeks after the invasion, and with Russian troops still threatening to seize the capital, Ukrainian negotiators at a meeting in Istanbul proposed adopting neutral status, in effect abandoning a bid to join NATO, which Ru- Russia has long opposed in exchange for security guarantees from other nations. Now, who knows whether or not that was ever going to actually materialize into some kind of formal pact with Russia. Um, and, you know, it was scuttled, you know, within like a day or something because of the, um, you know, the outrage that was stoked over the images that came out of the Buka situation. Um, so it, the, getting a, uh, you know, a timeline of what actually happened there would be, I think, illuminating. Um, but even just based on what we know, even just based on that one line, that if let's say that was actually proposed by the Ukrainian negotiators, the New York Times is saying correctly that's, that that position is no longer even being entertained. So, of course, what does that mean if not the position becoming more hardline? Um, you know, now Ukraine says, you know, that uh, it's non-negotiable to expel Russia from all the Donbass, including like the majority Russian-speaking areas and even some of the areas that might have actually legitimately wanted to, would have voted in like a fair um, plebiscite to join Russia if they could. Um, those places must be totally uh, expelled of all Russian, um, you know, forces. And uh, same with Crimea. You know, those were simply just not the goal, stated goals earlier in the war, and now they are. And they even, you know, Zelensky even, like when he was in D.C. last week, 
I don't know if you remember this, but like during his speech, he said that, you know, Ukraine will propose a peace plan because, you know, the Biden administration had been trying to impart on Ukraine officials to at least kind of gesture as though in public that they support, the, you know, the principle of doing negotiations at some point. So they seemed to take that to heart and said, OK, here's our peace plan. Uh, here, here's our plan for a peace summit. Uh, and this is how the, this is how uh, The New York Times describes it. Quote, Ukraine this week proposed a peace summit by the end of February, but said Russia could participate only if it first faces a war crimes tribunal. So essentially, uh, Russia can only participate if it's like senior leadership are deposed from power and, I don't know, incarcerated. So, of course, that's not like a peace. That's not like a negotiating. That's like a, a good faith or like bona fide negotiating uh, entreaty. It's a, you know, it's a, it's basically just a statement of Ukraine's resolve and an indication that they've indeed gotten more and more hard line. And, you know, apparently so has, um, Russia. I mean, even, uh, you know, coinciding with that, uh, Zelensky visit to, uh, DC last week was, uh, you know, Putin announcing, you know, potentially, you know, expanding uh, by 300,000 additional, uh, troops to the Russian army and, you know, reaffirming that, um, the four uh, annexed territories must, uh, you know, are like uh, indelibly Russian, and nothing has changed in that front. Um, that the, he's uh, apparently, um, you know, uh, declaring uh, no limit to Russian military spending. Um, so that's the more hardline position as well. Um, and yet, you know, just using the term to describe the Ukraine's aims uh, is seen as such a more, you know grievous moral affront. Um, even if it's just objectively true. So I mean, I guess my basic conclusion there, or the one that I kind of tentatively came up with just on the fly as I was looking at the outrage being spouted, is that like the, these people, when I'm saying these people, who do I mean? I don't know. I guess the Gary Kasparov types or the people who would like go out of their way. I even saw like a UCLA political science professor complaining about this. The, 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 the basic position is like even if something like is objectively demonstrable in terms of just empirical reality, in terms of what uh, Ukraine's war aims are, what they've expanded to, um, the language itself to describe those war aims needs to be hyper scrupulously sort of monitored for even potentially giving a connotation that it's not just always and everywhere a 24-7 just full-throated moral endorsement of the, like, the righteousness of Ukraine or of like the rationality of their position. Um, yeah. Anyways, that's, that's yeah, I don't like, think a lot of yeah. these people read it because it's not simply the uh, it's not simply they want their territory back. It's also the, yeah, the, the, that's jumped out at me too. After they've all been on trial, okay, food, like, okay, when, when your trial is over, then we'll start to negotiate. I mean, yeah, it's obviously ridiculous. I mean, Russia is ridiculous too, right? They're saying, give us Zaporizhia and Kherson, I mean, which they don't even control, right? They just want more territory to keep the territory they have. And then Ukraine says, oh, they have to all be on trial. So, yeah, clearly these both sides still want to fight. Nobody is interested um, in a peace talk now. And you're right, these pro-Ukrainians. I mean, people are so dumb. I mean, like the the headlines, I mean, people just go off of headlines. I don't know if you saw this today. There was a New York, uh, uh, it was New York, uh, the New Yorker, uh, I think. Yeah, it was a New Yorker. It was like the case for masking forever. And it was, uh, it, was a, oh it was it was an article about like this, like a uh, group of like communist epidemiologists <laughs> who were getting together. And they were like trying to like advocate for this. But it was like sort of like making fun of them. It was like, you know, like arguing that they were crazy pretty much. 
Uh, and then people were like, you know, uh, stupid people on like the right, like I had Miles Chong. You ever see this guy? Just like the worst oh, please. actor. I'm like the worst actor imaginable. I got, like, I got, I got Ian Miles Chong because I was invited on a. Uh, it's funny. <laughs> the only <laughs> people might not believe this, but the only uh, stream or anything that I've ra- ever rage quit. And when I say say rage quit, I'm being uh, I'm exaggerating. Like, I, I I quit. I, I left the stream in like slight exasperation after feeling like it wasn't going anywhere. It was just getting too annoying to even tolerate doing anymore. It was like a pro Russian stream. It was organized by this guy, Gonzalo Livra. I mean, it was like a, mostly a decent, uh, okay conversation for a while. Ian Miles Chong was, was on it. That was, uh, he was uh, the guy arrested by the Ukrainians, right? Um, I don't know exactly whatever happened there. It's unclear. It's unclear what those guys deal is really. But in that stream, um, I actually got Chong to just straight up admit, I think for the first time, or uh, I'm not aware of him ever doing it in the past anyway, that, um, he was just straight up, you know, farming for followers and engagement and just like a, like, as like uh, almost like spam bot style over the course of the entire Trump presidency. Because I don't know if you remember, but he would always just be tweeting at Trump like world's best president and thank you, sir. You're doing such a great job. And like anybody who's, you know, not an idiot probably could have ascertained that he was just trying to like, you know, basically, you know, farm followers in, in this like spammy style by like, you know, just kind of being a leech on Trump's account. And, but, you know, I, I got him to admit that that's what he was doing. And he's doing this and, and Chong is doing the same thing with uh, Musk right now. Yeah. Yeah. Is it true? So, yeah. I mean, he's just, yeah. Is it, um, so yeah, but I mean, this was like the, the this mask thing. He was like, so yeah, he was posting this and saying, yeah, you know, these people want us to mask forever, blah, blah, blah. It was just like, just the exact same thing with the Ukraine thing. I don't think anyone read the article. Um, is it true? Is it true? He's in Malaysia. He's in Malaysia and he's never even been to the U.S. Is that true? <laughs> um, that's a, that's also a bit unclear. I know he is in Malaysia. Whether he's ever been to the U.S., I'm not sure. Um, but he definitely makes um, uh, involvement in, like, you know, U.S.-centric uh, social media controversies, his yeah. like, life's I mean, pursuit. Advice for people. People who always post, like, screenshots and don't, like, post links, like, you just should inherently not trust those people, right? Because they they don't want you to – they usually don't want you to go and actually click the link and, and read anything. You see the one about Xi Jinping's uh, bisexual daughter? No. So people were screwed. The screenshot was going viral. It was like uh, Xi Jinping's daughter announces she is bisexual, and then all uh, all women are. She's like, they have a quote for her, like, "All women are somewhat bisexual, right?" And I looked, I, I tried to find this anywhere. It wasn't a lot. It was. It started on 4chan. It was like, you know, clearly a hoax, and you know, this went viral. A lot of people are gonna see, you know, this as you know, uh, Xi Jinping's daughter is bisexual. They're gonna think this is like confirmation of whatever something of their worldview, and there's just there's just absolutely nothing to it. It's completely made up. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, the people just screenshots, no links. I mean, those are the people you should never trust. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not sure exactly how much that would apply to like the New York Times article, right? Because it seems like even if they had read the article, they could still, you know, possibly object to Maybe, the word but- hard line. They think that that's not. Uh, you know, sil- but, deferential but, 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 enough but, of Ukraine. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't like you know flatter the vir- perceived virtues of Ukraine enough. Maybe, maybe these people are crazy, but the uh, the thing that you know, as I, as I noted, the um, the the fact that it's um, you know, the, the it wasn't just Ukraine wants its territory back. It's like put Russia on trial right before you do that. And like, I think any reasonable person, like they what they were saying was like they were acting like the only thing Russia was demanding was Crimea back and their territory back. And if that's what they thought, 
that, you know, they weren't reading the article because there was much more than that. Yeah. And, and by the way, you know, on this idea of, you know, a tribunal of Russian for Russian war crimes, um, because coverage of U.S. policy in Ukraine is so like fundamentally incurious, I think there's a lot of attention paid to it. But like the details are very rarely ever delved into, like you actually have to read a bunch of boring legislative texts. So, for example, like I a couple months ago uh, talked to this Republican congressman. I mean, this and this kind of was a reason why I was trying to like patiently explain to people why if Republicans take over the House, it does not mean that like all of a sudden Kevin McCarthy is going to abandon Ukraine. I mean, that's ridiculous. But um, one of the uh, promoter uh, an architect of one of this uh, of this piece of legislation, uh, Chris Smith, who's like oh, this. I think he's the longest serve Republican in the House now, Republican in New Jersey. He put forth this um, legislation, basically calling on the U.S. to um, make plans or uh, implement a plan to uh, uh, try Putin and senior Russian officials in some sort of tribunal over you know war crimes in Ukraine. And, you know, my question that I tried to put to uh, Chris Smith, and I did actually a substack on this, or it was included in the substack I did, was, um, okay, so how does, how exactly does Putin get, end up getting tried, convicted, and imprisoned if not, uh, if not with the Russian government having been collapsed, or if not, like, there, if not with there being regime change in Russia? It's like, isn't, the premise of this legislation that there would be have to be regime change in Russia. And like the guy never didn't seem to think it through or who knows, maybe he was just trying to like uh, brush me off. Maybe he does want regime change in Russia, but like, I, I just don't see how you prosecute and imprison Putin for on war crimes without imposing regime change in Russia. It seems like they kind of go hand in hand. Well, uh, lo and behold, a v- variation of that uh, bill was uh, passed in the NDAA. Um, and it actually uh, potentially allows for um, Putin to be tried in a domestic U.S. court. <laughs> really? For for yeah. Here's here's the language in the actual bill. Um, Statement of policy is the policy of the United States to collect, analyze, and preserve evidence and information related to war crimes and other atrocities committed during the full scale invasion of uh, full scale Russian invasion. I don't know why they always say full scale. Whatever. Uh, invasion of Ukraine that began on February 24, 2022, for use in appropriate domestic, foreign, and international courts and tribunals prosecuting those responsible for such crimes with a, uh, with applicable law, uh, consistent with applicable law, including the American Services uh, American Service Members Protection Act of 2002, which is also, by the way, the act that's known as like the Hague Invasion Act because it pro- prohibits <laughs> any American national from ever being tried in uh, that particular international tribunal, but apparently that's being contemplated for Putin. But but they allow for the possibility in the use of the word domestic that Putin or whomever else could be tried in a, a, under like the purview of some domestic U.S. legal entity, which is like hugely extreme. I doubt that would end up being what they would ever try to do. Although this is an extreme, an extreme sort of uh, scenario either way. Um, but, you know, that's kind of what Nuremberg was um, in that, like, you know, Nuremberg was l- physically located inside, like, the U.S. military occupation zone in uh, Germany after the German state had been destroyed and the U.S. had legal jurisdiction. And so, I don't know. It's uh, 
it's kind of a, it's sort of a, you know, catches one attention if you actually know what you're looking for. And um, that was just passed in this uh, bill. So for, uh, for uh, Zelensky to come up with something similar on his own or like the top Ukraine, Ukraine official, government officials kind of coming up with a similar criteria for like what they mean by peace. Um, you know, they're, they're only doing it because they're, I mean, I don't know if they're only doing it for this reason, but like one re- reason that they're enabled to do it is because it's kind of, um, it coincides with the trajectory of U.S. policy that I guess few people are interested enough to actually delve into the details of. But um, all right, let's go to uh, callers and uh, Matt. Hoping you're going to give us a salacious update on the uh, state of affairs in Romania and Andrew Tate's whereabouts. This is exactly why I'm calling to give an update on the state of affairs in Romania because I'm swamped tonight with work, but I was hoping you guys would do a call. I decided to talk about this. I'm in Papera, the neighborhood, like he was arrested, Mr. Tate was arrested very close to me. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> and, all right. So my inside thing is. Okay, I don't know if the pizza box is real. This is is this more of a high this is more of a high end neighborhood, right? Or no? Not that actually not really. Okay. It's not it's not next to anything. It's a nice there's some good buildings in it, but it's not really next to anything. Hmm. And it's next he supposedly to work, like, I mean he's supposed to have Because didn't he supposedly have like a luxury compound? Yeah, well, there yeah, so there's luxury buildings here, but it's not a good okay. not a different area. Oh, but okay. uh the thing with the pizza the pictures people are posting, it is a real pizza restaurant here that's open late that, like, we have dined, we have ordered from because, you know, it's still Romania. The food apps don't deliver. A lot of the restaurants don't deliver very late, so we've ordered from this place. Um, so they could be true. The the Greta pizza thing could totally be true. <laughs> but, I, but, but here's what I don't get. Did they not... But did, did did they not know that he was in Romania, or like was it like an open question whether he was in Romania, and like part of the investigation was to determine whether he was physically in Romania? Like I never, again, yeah. granted, I did, I haven't followed it that closely, but I was never under the impression that there was like doubt as to his whereabouts. Like I thought well, it was just established that he was in Romania, and he had like a, he had like a resident his residence was Romania. No, no, but he's. They were saying he was pretending to be in Qatar because he found out that he has a rape charge in three. Oh, okay. Charges. And this comes from. So, like, look, I've I've been busy today. My fiance has been out about, but uh, I have like you know that chick, that Syrian girl. Now he's at Syrian girl. Yeah, yeah. She's great, by the way. Uh, she's would be one to incline to like not pile on to Andrew Tate, but she she said she's seen some stuff on this. And like, look, dude. <laughs> like, I don't. I want to call Romania the strictest thing about these things he's being charged <laughs> with. So it's not a, not a very. Uh, it's not. It's. I'm outside the longhouse, you know. Yeah. By the way, well, that the initial guy, investigation the, was supposedly you name, know uh, prompted by the died. U.S. embassy. So, by the way, that that guy's also Romanian. The famous uh, guy I'm referencing there with the term longhouse. Okay. Um, well, because but you the, want to uh, say hi uh, to my friend Mike, Selena. Just scream hi, just to prove that this is all made up. Hello. Hello, <laughs> <coughs> Matt. Even if it was all made up, it would be an impressive enough uh, long-term swindle that I would just have to cr- give you credit. But, yeah. Uh, well, you know, my job was psyop. So. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, 
So, uh, I mean, what's your, um, so like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like just my very cursory refreshing of my uh, understanding of this was that he was only ever investigated in the first place in like April of this year because there was like a complaint made by the U.S. Embassy, right? So like the Romanian authorities weren't just on their own, like looking to, to no, but they uh, don't. prosecute him for like, human dude, trafficking. They don't. <laughs> they right. really don't much. I mean, look, I mean, if what you're getting, I don't think you're actually getting at this, but like. I'm not getting at anything. I'm, I'm, I'm generally uncertain. Anything, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to say like I'm generally whatever the, the social media libtard, the whatever blankocracy goes after someone, I'm inclined to defend. But uh, we've like, there's stories about him here before any of this, before he became the head of social media, there was such a target of him just like hiring gypsies to go, to go to clubs with him to start fights. And like, there's not really fights at nightclubs here like America. So he's just like a piece of shit. But, uh, oh, the other thing was there's apparently they found him with like 10 million euro. There's all these rumors going around, like in cash. So money laundering might be a part of this, too. Was he supposedly in uh, Qatar because of like some World Cup related thing or he just ha- it just happened to be Qatar? Uh, I, uh, I have no idea what he was doing in Qatar, but I imagine, <laughs> you know. I imagine he becomes famous on social. This is how it works here, you know. People go here. They go to the small towns. You know, these girls. They, you know, they want to get coach bags. They want to travel. They don't want to live. Like the the dissident rights all wrong. Like they're even in the small areas. They're still Bill grade the same way they've been doing since the 1800s. People want to be part of so like. So he gets these girls, and he probably he's famous on social media for being able to get girls. So probably some Qatari guy, you know, wanted some white women. Okay, I'm gonna. Uh, um, you you gave me the idea of asking my girlfriend if she wants to shout a quick hello into the phone just to prove that she also exists. So uh, I'll try to persuade her to do that. Um, all right, uh, Richard, are you satisfied with that explanation of uh, uh, from the ground in Romania? Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's I don't know if I learned a whole lot there, but uh, no, I, I I I never doubted that women in rural Romania would want to. Would have big dreams of moving out of rural rural Romania, and yeah, we'll see. I mean, you, Andrew said, uh, Matt said, uh, 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 you know, like it's not, you know, one of the things Tate said was one of their. He said, actually, there's a quote from him. I don't know if this was just a troll or something, but I saw a quote from him in an article. It said forty percent of the reason. Hey, uh, hey, Matt, she actually wants to ask you something. So uh, hold on for a second. Uh, so yeah, one of the forties that forty percent of the reason I moved to Eastern Europe was because it's easier to, it's harder to get charged with rape over there. I don't know if that was just like a joke he was making or, or what, um, but yeah, but but like you say, like oh, it's actually so like these, you know, these, it's not like they have local law enforcement over there, but maybe if the American embassy is pressuring them, yeah, I see that. All right, Matt, uh, stand by. Here's my uh, my girlfriend is making her big public debut because she wants to ask you a question. <laughs> An American woman. Well, that's yes. She had an American. Uh, I've heard now. There's rumors of resident American residency or an American, like an actual American woman, right? Like a sorry, not actual, but a citizen, right? But like, okay, so you're are you British? You might ask that. Yes, I am. <laughs> okay, so you know that British people. How can come you tell? For one, like they, there's a lot of British dudes that do what he's doing. Maybe not to his extent, right? But like, what's coming out is. The, it's not just 
you know, the sort of commodification of sexuality that's inherent in neoliberalism. It's like actual like kidnapping and rape. That's what the right. rumors are flurrying around. Yeah. But like, but like it's not like hard to be mobbed up here too. And there's good people in Romania that want to, you know, take on organized crime. And that might be part of it, getting him to flip on some of the people that he's associated with. It's not hard to get involved with these people at all here. But surely the like the victims would be Romanian women and not like I don't know, like the fact that it's an American woman makes me think it's a lie. <laughs> oh, that he's been or or like one of the NGOs said an American woman. No, I mean look, it's I yeah, that that stuck out is very strange to me, to be honest. But it's uh, you know, it's hubris, right? Like you can get away with it in Romanian, could he get away with it? I don't know, maybe. I want to tell you, I'm very, I got banned from Clubhouse once for uh, bodily threatening Jonathan Katz. I'm a big, big fan of your, uh, your boy. Wait, you did? Yeah, I got banned. And then I made, well, it wasn't a violent threat, actually. It was just making fun, making fun of him with room titles. Um, yeah, he's, 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 he's somebody who I'm actually comfortably just um, comfortable calling just psychotic because like i'm not even trying to psychoanalyze the guy his just his behavior is just demonstrably psychotic at least as it's directed toward me so oh it's, it's very I even, fixated, I, very fixated yeah but yeah. Like, you know what's you're, strange, you, though, you know like, you're you're you know that on colin uh, i think it was in september i had like i uh when i was on my whole world war ii kick he um I had an exchange with him that went on for like 45 minutes, which, so like I was willing, I wanted to at least show that I was willing to engage with him substantively. Um, but like it didn't, didn't change his perspective on me at all. And then he just got even more psychotic after that. So like eventually I just said, okay, I mean, this is a, a, a rare instance where I just have to block the guy and like just stop dealing with him at all. Yeah. Well, what's makes him especially psychotic, I mean, all this sort of behaviors, psychotic, but it's kind of typical to the online space. But did it, like, I finally Googled him. And he like wrote a book about Smedley Butler. He should be right yeah. up your alley. Like, why is he? Why like? What is this? It's just you know. Well, yeah, I I, I know he, he did. Um, but you know, he actually referenced in I think there was that Colin uh, session that you know Smedley Butler had the revelation that uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, you uh, you know, despite his res- all his qualms about the military industrial complex, like it was necessary to employ the military industrial complex in world war two. And so like he was, it showed like he had like a like certain undercurrent of rationalities. It wasn't just like a total peacenik. I don't know if I'm characterizing his view correctly or, you know, or, or if I'm summarizing Katz's depiction of Butler correctly or whatever. So, um, or if the book is even good, like maybe it was like a, you know, annoying, obnoxious spin on Smedley Butler for whatever Katz's own deranged purposes. But anyway, let's not, I know, let's, not, let's, let's, let's not, let's not, let's not dwell on yeah, that. Yeah, sorry guy. to bring that up. I just wanted, I, it's a colorful way of saying I really like, you know, there's like five journalists I like and one of them is Michael Tracy. Right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. I do have a quick question actually. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you could ask me anything about, about Romania, but uh, do, do you even know who this Niles Gilman is? Uh, I've seen him on Twitter. He wrote this article that's so prescient from 2014 called The Twin Insurgency, Nils, Nils Gilman. And, like, I think it the 2014, the world just got more like this article, The Twin Insurgencies. And, you know, like, I think it kind of describes what's going on here in Romania, you know, unless everything, really, it's like one of those big, big pieces that gets out everything for the American interest. And, like, I haven't heard, like, this guy kind of dropped off the face of the earth, you know? Or maybe I'm not following things. Yeah, I'll take a look. I, I I vaguely might remember you 
referencing him before, but maybe. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, something. I've but, asked it twice because it just bothers me that he's. Was yeah, but I'll. Uh, I'm gonna. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna look up. Uh, so what's the what's the what's the title of the article? You remember from 2014? Uh, I posted it in this group chat. It's called the Twin Insurgencies. It's okay. just about like you know, like the world's becoming. You got these like in America. Just look at America, right? You get your blue clusters, so like affluent people. Like the world's coming. Like I would take even further. Hip. It's becoming like Walleye, or that movie Wally for like privileged quote unquote people and then like blood meridian for the rest of people and like there's yeah. parts of Romania they're still like blood meridian you know this is this is what it is okay well yeah I pulled that up and I uh, I actually will read it because it seems like an interesting premise and you were so you're so effusive in your uh, flattery <laughs> of me that how could I not it, oh, it, it, almost, it it's almost as uh, almost as good as the best best accolades I've ever gotten was uh, Anna uh, Kachian um, on um, the Tim Dillon show said that uh, there are only, um, I think she said, three or four journalists who don't belong in prison, and I'm one of the two, three or four. That's so a good one, that. yeah. Or Dasha said you're the highest IQ poster. Recently. Really? Uh, did she say yeah. that? Yeah. Was, I, I missed that. One of the more recent episodes. It oh, was okay. a contest between you and Sailor, so I don't know if you want to quote on it, but she said you're the highest IQ poster. Well, I mean, Sailor should have gone down in anyone's estimation when he uh, basically had the quintessential quote-unquote boomer take on like all things World War II. I mean, he, he sounded like a History oh, yeah, Channel uh, documentary. Fucker. He sounded like he sounded like a History Channel uh, documentary. It was what pretty embarrassing. Girl. What a little anyway, girl. Anyway, right, thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. <laughs> um... Uh, Bob, Andrew, I just saw uh, put in the uh, chat. <laughs> uh, Nathan is currently doing a vocal analysis of uh, my girlfriend. Which okay, hey Bob, um, have at it, Nathan. Hey, uh, first of all, my pronouns are Nugget and Nuggets. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, nugget I, with I a Z. Say, okay. Yeah. So Nugget yeah. with an S, you would take that as a personal affront. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So I totally understandable. Yeah. Uh, to both Michael and Richard, I, I appreciate you guys. I like what you do. I like the content you put out. I think you're good thinkers. Uh, so this is coming from the place of like a loyal fan of, of both of you yeah, guys. Here comes, here comes but the I major want, butt ellipsis. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I want to call up Richard. So Richard's um, posts uh, like his 2022 year in review and his Substack, which which you should subscribe to his Substack because he writes really good content. Um, one of the things he calls out is like being anti-vax. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna go there. Uh, if you look, Uh-oh, here I, we go. I think that yeah, <laughs> um, there, there's okay. two types of opposition to the vax, right? Uh-huh. There's obviously this really extreme, far out there, like oh, they're going to put 5G microchips and control your mind with it. And that's obviously ridiculous, right? And, and I understand where Richard's coming from, his opposition to that. However, there are a lot of sensible people who I don't think are inherently low IQ, as you describe them, who are reluctant and cautious and who have been proven right over time uh, with the COVID-19 vaccine because it was essentially a new technology, the mRNA technology. The, these are people, including myself, who are pro-vaccine. That For all the other vaccines, all you know, all my kids are vaccinated and that. I'm not one of these anti-vaxxer uh, moms in like Southern California, right? But but I was concerned over this and wanted to give it, a, you know, a couple of years of trial and error, essentially, of testing 
to see if it was Lindy, to see if it was good and see if it would have worked. And over the past two years, I think at best, it was a relatively ineffective product. Um, and at worst, there might be some serious side effects. Like there are things that are completely unexplained. For example, and this was uh, in the Wall Street Journal article by the New York Secretary of Health or the head of health department in New York, where he's like, we don't really know why the COVID vaccine, the mechanism, why it affects women's menstrual cycles. Like a lot of women have reported that it does, right? Um, we don't know why. So I, I think like the anti, in your subsect, you're basically like anybody that's anti-vax is low IQ. These people are dumb um, and they should all be getting vaxxed. I think that there is a sensible opposition to it and reluctance to take it, especially given that it was forced. Um, and this is my final point, and then I'll pause. It was forced by a public health establishment that was wrong and that lied, right? So there's a reason for skepticism and there was a reason for distrust. Two weeks to flatten the curve was a lie. The complete about face on masks and the efficacy of masks. It was a liar, was exaggerated at best, right? The danger posed by COVID-19, lockdowns as a method of public health control. All of these things were exaggerated. They were lies. The, the idea that you needed to take the vaccine to get some form of herd immunity and that natural immunity didn't work. Like we know now that that's completely false. We know now that the vaccine is you know, ineffective at preventing transmission. So I just think that like you're slandering of an entire group of people of being low IQ. Okay. I, it's all right, Bob, I think we, I think we, I think we got it. Thanks. Yeah, thank Richard's you. on the hot seat uh, sufficiently. So let's see. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's, I don't think that all anti-vaxxers, not all people of any persuasion are low IQ. Although I do think there is a strong, for just, you know, for my, uh, for my Twitter feed, there's a strong correlation between being anti-vax and low IQ, especially for the extreme anti-vax, the people who just don't believe in vaccines completely or don't believe that the uh, the COVID vaccines should be uh, given to anybody, even old people, who people who think that it's you know causing millions of deaths or, or whatever. Um, I agree with you that public health has failed in many things. Um, I think the lockdowns, the masks, I think all that stuff is uh, disgraceful. Um the but the, I, I don't agree with you that the vaccine is ineffective for what we care about, which is uh, reducing uh, uh, serious illness and death. And we have these studies of, you know, millions and millions of people, country after country. I mean, if there were serious effects of the vaccine that balanced out the benefit it gives you, we would have seen it by now. Like maybe, you know, you say maybe years from now, something will be different. Well, maybe. I mean, but also, you know, getting a serious case of COVID. I mean, there's there's potentially long term complications of that too. So I don't see any reason to think the long-term complications of the vaccine is worse than get a long-term complications of COVID, getting long-term complications of COVID-19. I think probably there's a reason to think that the long-term complications of COVID-19 is worse. I mean, the reason that they, I think the reason that the COVID-19 has a vaccine has such, uh, um, has a, you know, a good deal, a great about a good deal of side effects is because COVID-19 is a very, very vicious disease. I know people who are in their twenties and thirties who, uh, who, um, uh, who weren't vaccinated, who got COVID, and were basically coughing their lungs out for weeks and weeks or lost their sense of smell for a month. I mean, this is a serious thing. We don't know what the long-term effect of that either, either is. I mean, I think my friends, I tell them even they were young, they should have gotten vaccinated. So, yeah, I mean, like when I, when I say uh, low IQ, I think that a lot of the, uh, I think that a lot of the, uh, 
the sort of more extreme anti-vax sentiment is that direction. I don't think everyone who questions anything about the vaccine is absolutely crazy. Um, but, you know, I mean, like if I'm, I'm thinking of, I probably was thinking of like Donald Trump Jr. and like the Hodge twins. I mean, like the way it's been, the way the vaccine issue has been treated on the right, where like Trump says, you know, you guys should get vaccinated and everyone, you know, his old, you know, fat boomer audience starts booing him and like they're the audience who needs to be vaccinated the most. I think that's, you know, that's clearly that these people just don't know what's going on. And, or how about yeah. or how about those quintessential cases that the media definitely was a bit too giddy in reporting, but they definitely did happen nonetheless, you know, throughout 2021 and so forth when you'd have these, you know, Maybe a uh, small to mid market, like right wing talk radio hosts or media, right wing media personalities. It's like, a, you know, I, I don't know, like a, an overweight, like 63 year old who was um, bombastic in his uh, opposition to the vaccine, then contracting COVID and dying. I mean, I mean, Bob, would you uh, concede? And I'm not even really de- necessarily defending uh, uh the entirety of Richard's view here, but I'm just curious if Bob, like you would concede that, like that examples like that, where like somebody who clearly probably would have been better off had they gotten the vaccine, like in that particular, let's say age category and physical condition, uh, but just on some principle, you know, perceived political ground defiantly uh, chose not to, that that was a, you know, what you might call a low IQ decision. <laughs> Yeah, I just I, I don't know. I, I don't think that it, it's they were always based on the counterfactual that had they taken the vaccine, they they wouldn't have died, which which is it's a hard claim to make. Well, right? how it's, come it, there's no there's no long list of left wing? <laughs> I mean, like there was one after the other, like the media, like picks anecdotes, but it was amazing. I mean, there was dozens of them. Like how many, you know, how many right wing radio hosts are there? There's apparently a lot of them who died because they didn't take the vaccine. No, for I mean, for the elderly, the older you get, the more clear it is that the vaccine works. I mean, we just have data on people who are vaccinated, people who are not vaccinated. We have the, uh, you know, it's a counterfactual, but we know, you know, whatever the, you know, the latest numbers are for like, you know, five, six times, seven times, whatever, more likely to die. So like, yeah, there was a 90% chance they would have, 90 or 95% chance they would have lived if they would have been vaccinated. We know, I mean, we know the counterfactual, not every single case, but, you know, I think it's clear. And so, yeah, I think this is like, something unhealthy going on when all these sort of right-wing uh, radio hosts are all dropping dead because of their political views. Well, you know, the, the media would never highlight um, obese, say, African-American or Hispanic-American deaths, right? Uh, highly likely to be left-leaning, um, highly inclined to die because of the, the obesity. They all, I mean, they but the media would never, them. never highlight that. No, they and they would never important. say, like, it's low IQ that these people are, are all dying, right? But they will do that with, like, a, a right-wing radio host because there are certain groups in our society that you're allowed to hate upon in, in the two minutes of hate. I'll just I'll just say one more thing because I, I think the vaccine debate, it, it's trite. It could be played out elsewhere. And, and I, again, I respect you guys. I will say there is a tendency for intellectuals, and I don't know what this is called, but it's it's intellectuals who kind of take dissident positions, who are from, call it that upper middle class, um, academic or academia, milieu, right? They'll, they'll, they'll take a intentionally high status position to counter signal 
where they are. And, and maybe I'm not articulating this well enough, but this is a trend I see time and time again. Does, like are, does that categorization apply status. to me? I mean, because uh, I don't, I, I'm not a, uh, I'm not an academic, I <laughs> academic. I, I think Richard is more, he's okay. more about the upper middle class vibes than, than Michael. You're kind of an <laughs> expert. I, I don't think you fall into a class category, but there is this tendency and I'll, I'll pause. There's this tendency that if you're a dissident intellectual, you'll take at least one position and you'll hyper-focus on it that is aligned with your, your fellow class uh, uh, people as a way of saying, like, I'm, I'm not totally one of those low-status anti-vaxxers. And I, I just think that there's some prejudice built into the, the, the anti-anti-vaxxer position. So I'll pause there. I appreciate you guys. Just something to chew on. Okay. Yeah, I mean, some some people do say that. I mean, they say I'm counter signaling to be friends with liberals or something. But no, I mean, there could be a case where someone actually believes something that, you know, it would be very strange to uh, to believe everything, you know, to, or to doubt everything that liberals believe. So, uh, yeah, I understand of the I understand that kind of speculation of psychological motives. It's a plausible story, um, but no, I'm not trying to make liberals like me here. All right. Uh, thanks, Bob. That was, uh, I think, a fairly well-crafted uh, criticism. Uh-huh. Definitely it didn't seem to apply to me. It was I was just sort of like a pretext for uh, having a go at Richard. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, <laughs> hey, Andrew. Hello, gentlemen. I'm here to give a status update on my Twitter appeal. I know that's urgent news. Uh, yeah, that's what, I've been, uh, that's what I've been. Uh, that's I wake up in the morning. Uh, <laughs> Well, Each you, day. Can, you, you can wake up and with the knowledge that it's been denied. I'm not coming back to Twitter. They, really? my, what did they my, catch you for originally? Uh, I commented to Caitlin Johnstone that Simon oh, Tisdall yeah. should be thrown in a trench in Ukraine because he's calling for other people to fight the war. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, right. If you want to throw that, anyone, they'll, they'll, they'll get you. Yeah. The throwing. It's targeted abuse and it won't stand. So. Sorry. Uh, really? That. Well, um, I don't know if... Uh, I could try to build up a uh, drumbeat of uh, demands to Musk personally to to uh, reevaluate the decision, but well, who knows? Who knows be- what? Who knows? Like how you, how exactly to get things to go across his uh, transom? I, I did it once apparently, but I don't know how exactly that happened. You, you'd have to be pretty lucky, but I'm sure you'd be doing Twitter a big favor because my expertise is needed. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that one of the stories of the year that's been coming out in the last week more, uh, I think is the Nord Stream pipeline story. The fact that they immediately blamed Russia and then shut up for like a month and a half. And now they're slowly the New York times and Washington post putting out articles, ex- ex- essentially saying it wasn't yeah. Russia and that there's no evidence. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually have to, cr- I mean, uh, like a week or so before those articles came out, I think the New York, the, uh, Washington post was the first, but I had been like, you know, doing one of my occasional gripes about the, uh, inadequacy of, you know, us media coverage on a whole host of these, you know, Ukraine conflict related issues. And in particular, like the incuriosity about, you know, whatever happened with that whole pipeline sabotage thing. Um, and then, you know, I, to the credit, of the Washington Post, they actually did put out a fairly um, extensive, you know, in, investigative report, quote, quoting lots and lots of different, uh, apparently European and American officials, where more or less it was definitively ruled out uh, that uh, Russia was was responsible. So it's a good reason not to be ever so kind of um, conclusively uh, dismissive or um, 
uh, of like, you know, major news outlets, which, you know, for all their faults, um, often do have like the human resources available to actually do, uh, you know, uh, substantial journalistic work that kind of like moves the story forward. So, you know, the Washington Post did that. And, uh, you know, uh, speaking of uh, alienation with right wing outlets, like that's uh, more than can be said about a lot of then a lot of these uh, media outlets that uh, you know are you know vaguely cons- generally considered right wing, um, but don't really have the reporting capacity to actually advance a story in the way that the uh, Washington Post did with this uh, their latest uh, Nord Stream update. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, you know the, the Washington Post and New York Times both had an article. Uh, saying the same thing, right? There was no evidence on the North Sea. The New York Times had an interesting uh, piece where they said the Russians are starting to uh, uh, pay f- to repair it, uh, which makes you know unlikely that they were doing. They also had other interesting facts. They said it's very unclear that Ukraine would have the ability to do this. Yeah, I mean, if I was going to guess, I would say probably Poland or a Baltic uh, country, or maybe maybe the U.S. Itself. Well, Russia accused uh, the UK of doing it, right? Yeah, that's I don't know. They accused the USA, you said? The UK. The UK. UK. I guess that's possible. And, uh, you know, there's a theory about how it was happened, I think, when during the brief period when Liz Truss was prime minister. And apparently, like, her phone was hacked or something, right? And there's a theory going around how she was could have interpreted to be bragging on the phone to uh, Blinken about how they, they did it. Yeah, I looked at that. I was uh, I was not impressed with that evidence. I don't remember the details, but I remember. Yeah, I wasn't sold on it either. But I knew that, that well, I know that was a theory that was percolating. It's circumstantial, but they were involved with the Kerch Bridge bombing, right? The Who the UK? Is that confirmed? I mean, I saw that, that, I've seen I that thought, rumor as well. I, I thought that that was uh, that they were involved in the planning somehow or in coming up with the idea, but maybe that's not right. I mean, well, there, was, there, there there was a gray zone article. Um, uh, where they published what seems to be totally authenticated. I mean, and this, this, you, you, right. you think this would get more wide media coverage because nobody I, that I've seen doubted the authenticity of the document. But there, but the uh, Gray Zone published a document from the UK uh, government, like an internal sort of planning document for like, potential sabotage operations um, that very closely sort of mirrored the uh, bridge uh, bombing that would take place a couple months later. So that's, that's not dispositive evidence that the UK, you know, carried out or even was necessarily operationally involved in that particular incident. But, you know, it's definitely relevant uh, information to take into account. Yeah, that's Kit Clarenberg's work. And yeah. ironically, it, well, not ironically, it, uh, you know, predictably got international coverage in like Singapore, but not in, you know, the West where it's really relevant. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's hilarious. Like, what's the message here? If if Americans were, you know, paying attention at all, it, it, you know, just think of it in a way where if it really was Russia, what would the U.S. and corporate message be? It would be immediately that, oh, well, there have to be consequences and we can't let this kind of thing become a standard. And this is an attack on international critical infrastructure. The fact that none of that is happening is just such a big tell to me. And it's kind of like... Uh, there's some things that just stick out that kind of show how everybody's mind seems to be just paralyzed. You know what I mean? Like the, this is such a big red flag, and yet publicly these outlets aren't really doing much other. I mean, even the Washington Post article's headline. First of all, the New York Times didn't even say the Russians did it in the headline. They just called it a mystery in the headline. 
And the Washington Post article had to soften the language to say that it wasn't conclusive evidence, but really the story is no evidence. So, I mean, if, if this was the situation where they didn't know it was either the U.S. or U.S. approved, they would be sitting here every day talking about, oh, my God, the consequences. When, when's it going to happen next? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's just it's, it, they, they're treating it like a, just a sort of a classic whodunit. Like a mist, a murder mystery, <laughs> right? Just some random guy died on uh, from you know mysterious circumstances. It's an you know, international pipeline, you know. And I was just thinking, maybe your little event there would have been going on if this pipeline wasn't blown up. Maybe the, you know, the money wouldn't have been so tight. But yeah, um, the last thing I wanted to say was John Mearsheimer had an interview with uh, Unheard, uh, Jesse Sayer. Yeah, I saw that. You, oh, great. Yeah, I just wondered if you'd seen it or if you both seen it. I thought it was really good and interesting. You mean the, uh, the, the, the video pod, the video podcast thing? Yeah, it was like from this last week. They talked for about an hour about Russia. You know, Mark Schaefer, yeah, I think, I've, I think that was from a couple weeks ago. Okay. I've yeah. had, yeah. I'm sort of, I mean, I don't know. I've, I've sort of had it with Mersheimer. It's like he's, you know, he has this like big theory that he uses to explain everything. And like, you know, I feel like he doesn't have, like, you know, I'm becoming more interested in people who have like specific knowledge about Russia and Ukraine. Like there's a lot of times you'll ask him like, oh, what about this agreement? And he'll be like, oh, I don't know specifics of that. Right. So his whole thing, mm -hmm. I mean, I took, a, I took a class with him once. His whole thing is like he has IR theory and then he uses theory to like explain things. But he doesn't know like tons and tons about Russia and Ukraine. Like, I don't know, he knows something. But like, you know, I think me and Michael probably stay more up to date on like what's going day to day uh, than he does. So. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't know you took a class with him, Richard. I mean, how was that's uh, interesting. How was the class? I mean, just just what's your what was your general take on him? He was uh, he was fun. I was at law school at the University of Chicago, but he was teaching a, a, a graduate seminar in like great power relations. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so yeah, I just took I took that class. I, I was you were able to take a, uh, like two classes not outside the law school for credit, and that was one of it. So it was like a seminar with like you know twelve, uh, fifteen of us. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, he's like, you know, he's like, you could imagine he sort of controls the room. Uh, you know, he's sort of got like a cult of personality around him. Like, you know, you could tell like you know, a lot of professors are like this where like the grad students will come and they'll be like, oh, they're like really into like that professor's theory and like applying their theory and everything. So we read like, you know, we read his book. We read a lot of like his, uh, historical stuff. Um, and, you know, nice guy. I, I like John. It was fun. I, argue, I argued with him a lot. Um, I think that's probably like the one of the only people who like really argued with him. I think most of them, most of the others were sort of like, you know, in awe, in awe of him. A great guy. Funny story. Actually, I applied for the, you know, uh, the PhD program in international uh, relations at the uh, university of Chicago. I like, Oh, I know Mersheimer like now because I'm in his class, like maybe I'll, I'll get in. And then I got rejected and I'm like, Oh, maybe he did it. He didn't like me all that much. But yeah, I, went in, <laughs> I ended up going to UCLA. Yeah, but I, I've seen the conferences and stuff in years since. So yeah, we're, we're always been friendly. Do, you, do yeah. you disagree with his conclusion in the end where he said that uh, we're, we're screwed and there's not a diplomatic resolution coming? It's going to be a military resolution, essentially? I didn't see that, but I, would, I think I would agree with Wait, that. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, you wouldn't? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's, just, that's more or less what he said. I, I think I actually referenced <laughs> that, uh, Richard, in the column we did maybe a couple weeks ago. Where, yeah, yeah his, uh, his, uh, he basically said – he was asked by the host, Freddie – it's funny. I actually did the Unheard podcast in that exact same room 
uh, earlier this year with uh, Freddie Sayers, who's like the the editor of uh, Unheard. But when, what Freddie asked him is so, like, where do you see this going? I mean, is there any positive, uh, uh, you know, or optimistic sort of outlook that we could take on this? And he said, no, we're screwed because, like, basically, I mean, I think he's right in at least in the sense of yeah. observing what but is he, plainly he just factually true that there are these like mutually reconcilable. Uh, so, uh, goals says, but, that are but, clashing with one another. Yeah. That are, you know, yeah. But the thing about Mersheimer is he says this about everything, like, like you said about him having like a big fear. The, the, the thing that... Sorry, Richard, you might have cut off or something. Um, a- Andrew, I don't know if you noted this, if you watched the whole thing, but the thing that... The uh, part of it that made me want to pull my hair out was when, like, toward the end, they transitioned to uh, Taiwan. China. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and he no. just and 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 he and Mearsheimer had just gotten done saying, "Look, you know, nuclear war is the worst possible outcome. It has to be like his like he's like a lodestar was like doing whatever is necessary to avoid nuclear war, right?" Um, and yet he basically then just eliminated that with regard to Taiwan, and suggested that like World War Three would be worth it because over of hegemony. Because, well, right. because it would be like a, it's almost like stepping stone theory, really, right? Where he doesn't want China to be a regional hegemon like the U.S. is a regional hegemon, and that's worth the war and, uh, that we would apparently have to have. In- right, but I guess all the dangers that make U.S. intervention in Ukraine not worth it, according to Mearsheimer, are not sufficiently uh, disincentivizing with regard to Taiwan right. to apply a similarly kind of non-interventionist perspective in his view because it's just so civilizationally crucial to ensure that Russia not that China rather not be a regional hegemon in right. the South China Sea or something I mean that I would have appreciated a bit more probing on or how a war with Taiwan would really prevent that ultimately I mean the idea I think there's a lot of ways you could challenge that but uh, I mean yeah. that would be something I'd be interested in I'd also be interested in hearing what he thinks China's lesson they're taking away from what we're doing in Ukraine is now, because I think, I don't know China well, but Russia's saying that they should have invaded earlier. So, you know. Yeah, and apparently uh, Putin's meeting with uh, Xi again soon, so we'll see if anything comes of that. Any uh, All right. resolutions? Last question, any resolutions I should be aware of? I'm going to try to worship democracy in Ukraine more next year, personally. I'm going to... I, uh, resolve, I resolve to uh, continue uh, posting responsibly online. Oh, that will happen for sure then. Yep. All right. Thanks, thanks Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Okay. Gator and then Andrew number two, and then we'll wrap it up. Hey, guys. Hope you had a nice uh, Christmas holiday period, whatever it is you celebrate. Thanks. Yeah, mo- moderately. Good, good. Glad to hear it. Um, <laughs> but, but any chance that you, you're you're in Leith at the moment, Michael, with that uh, British-accented female of yours? <laughs> Leith? No, I'm in Edinburgh at the moment. She, no, but, uh, Leith is in Edinburgh, mate. It's, it used to be the shithole oh, place where um, uh, where train spotting sort of grew out of, but it's been ultra gentrified. So my joke was that your girlfriend does have a true Edinburgh accent. <laughs> Okay. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not uh, that familiar with the micro geography of uh, Edinburgh. So, no, I'm actually in the city of Edinburgh. So, yeah, Leith, I gather, is when, not in the city. No, but she's um, she's uh, she's English, but she she goes. She happens to uh, be in Edinburgh at the moment. So, cool, man. Um, I'm just wondering, sort of, if we take um, a bit of a parallel between 
the news front on uh, Ukraine and kind of how it runs in parallel with Twitter. Um, Musk is on uh, the All In podcast with Shamath Palhapataya, um, Jason something or other, and a couple of other people. And basically he's laughing, saying, which conspiracy Is he on it live about? right now or he was on it recently? No, he was on it. I, I, put, I chucked the link in the chat for you okay. to have a look at. Um, he's literally saying, well, which, which conspiracy theory about Twitter isn't true? They're all true, right? And, and, and Palapatai is asking him, you know, what have you got any particularly bad, <coughs> bad ones that you did that you were shocked by? And he, but he, he doesn't really answer much. He, and, and somebody just says, well, the, the literal number of feds inside inside Twitter was a little bit shocking. Right. Even if you believed that they were in it already. And my point being here that if you if you think about where the sort of the discourse has gone, it's literally. Oh, look, oh. Classic um, mainstream denial of, of 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 a possible story, until the truth, the, the the documentation starts pouring out, and then it goes into shutdown mode. So we can't find mention of the Twitter files inside the Guardian, for example, or to pick pick your poison. But at the same time, in in parallel in Ukraine, we've had this huge wave of Western claims of why we're doing it, why we should do it. What, what a sovereign nation is, all these things, and that we're going to win, and then all of the propaganda that comes out of Zelensky. Over time, what have we actually got? Admission, rep repetitive admission, that we're in direct conflict with Russia, and it's only Russia's, um, what's the word, reserve, that stops it using language which literally destroys all of the diplomatic stance of an all-out World War Three direct East-West conflict. That's the only thing that's in the way there, right? And now we've also got this um, situation where um, essentially, as you've just been talking about, you know, it, it, based militarily, this looks like it is definitely unwinnable. You know, Russia is not running out of weapons. And, and, and basically, I'm just wondering, at what point do, does the mainstream sort of listener realize that something's wrong? Or do you think that the way our mainstream media system works in suppression, propaganda and so on, it's literally able to string people along in an alternate reality until they choose to look at alt media and different sources. Well, one thing that I've been working on, you know, hopefully going to put this out in some form soon, is just to make a fairly straightforward, um, fact-based, non-hyperbolic, Non sort of um, extrapolatory is that a word? Non like not extrapolative. Like, extrapolative, um, uh, you know. I'm guessing rig like, as rigorous as possible, just sort of um, empirical case that at least as a, as uh, as uh, at least in terms of the matter in which the initial U.S. intervention, meaning beginning around February 24th, was presented to the public. Uh, and uh, if you just meaning look at take a look at the statements of Biden, of members of Congress, of uh, administration officials, like the main sort of themes in the media that are circulating circulating at the time. The the nature of the U.S. intervention at that point was um, sort of couched as a ver a limited defensive aid program, almost giving you the impression that it was wholly humanitarian, like the aid was largely, um, you know, some, you know, first aid kits and, um, 
bundles of uh, you know bread and cheese and or, or whatever, maybe along with a couple of rifles and javelins. Mm. Um, whereas, f- fast forward to today, what do we have? Utterly open-ended U.S. military uh, intervention that keeps escalating in its intensity. Uh, by the week, essentially, Patriot missiles being a latest uh, example of that, which Biden, of course, authorized. Uh, Biden, when Zelensky was in the U.S., said that he and Zelensky were of uh, the same vision as regards the sort of outcome of the war. And uh, Zelensky in the U.S. during the press conference basically ruled out the possibility of any kind of conceivable negotiations with Russia. So apparently if we take Biden at his word, and I know a lot of people don't because they think he's mentally decrepit, okay, can't really psychoanalyze him from that standpoint. But based on just what he says and what policy is, that's what U.S. Pol- that's what like the U.S. posture uh, in the war is materializing as. Um, basically furnishing Ukraine with an entirely new military, um, subsidizing the state, you know, paying its pensions and um, salaries uh, indefinitely. You know, those latest uh, funding uh, bill that was passed uh, was the largest tranche uh, yet since uh, the war started. You know, uh, $46 billion, was it? So um, what I'm going to try to do along the lines of what you just articulated there is try to present an extremely sort of incontrovertible case that the nature of the U.S. military intervention was essentially sold on false pretenses. Um, and that should have been something that the media would have been cognizant of from the very outset because mission creep is always, virtually always a thing with U.S. military interventions. You know, that's why you don't tend to want to take U.S. officials at their word when they kind of assure you that, you know, just trust us that the, you know, things are going to transpire as we're suggesting they will with this latest intervention. Like maybe it wasn't necessarily just a sure thing that, U.S. military intervention in Ukraine was going to be the first U.S. military intervention since the founding of the country that would just be 100% spotless in terms of its, um, you know, uh, virtue and transparency and, uh, you know, openness to uh, public scrutiny. And, you know, maybe there might have been a a bit of uh, chicanery underlying it that might would have uh, benefited from a bit more uh, journalistic scrutiny. But that journalistic scrutiny, as I've tried to kind of document intermittently since uh, last fe- last February is, was just basically abandoned for all kind of a, you know, a, uh, a variety of different ideological, political, and sort of emotional reasons. Um, so, you know, I guess one of the small contributions I can make in that respect, Gator, is just try to at least just, just show empirically that what the U.S. is engaging in now militarily and economically and diplomatically with regard to Ukraine at a accelerating pace in terms of its um, uh, operational intimacy and its uh, potentially potential for an even more sort of fraught and uh, dire escalation down the line is in is by no means consistent with how the intervention was portrayed to the public at the beginning. Um, and so you can, you know, uh, somebody could read that and say, look, doesn't matter. Uh, you know, maybe the uh, objectives of the war change because, you know, Ukraine proved itself to be so 
um, you know, uh, resourceful and so uh, gritty and so heroic. And so it's fine if, you know, the mission creep happened and basically the U.S. ended up uh, pledging to provide Ukraine with an entirely new military apparatus in the middle of a war. We support that. Okay, so be it. Let's just establish in as neutral a manner as possible using empirical methods that it simply was not portrayed to the public what the U.S. intervention would end up being. I think that would actually go a long way toward maybe uh, imparting on at least a minority of the population, or at least you know a, a, a minimally conscientious faction of like American news consumers, that uh, all is not quite uh, what it seems with respect to this uh, U.S. military intervention, and like also to like kind of situate it into the broader context of U.S. foreign policy, because it's almost as though it's kind of been separated out into its like own like category of. Like uh, it's all like metaphysical category. Like it's not even in a, in, a, in a continuum with past U.S. military interventions. It's its own thing. It's its own it has its own like exalted moral status. So it's almost like offensive or seen as offensive by some to, to relate it to I don't know Vietnam or Iraq or what have you. Although on the other hand, they constantly invoke World War II to you know to endow it with certain uh, elevated moral status. But that's neither here nor there. So anyway, yeah, I'm going on a bit of a rant, but I, I, I agree with you in general, Gator. But, and that's sort of like one angle that I'm planning on uh, focusing on more to kind of bring out some of the, uh, some of the uh, you know, questions that haven't been really sufficiently uh, probed in public yet. Yeah, good for you. I, th I think um, it would be um, good, good for you to put, you know, get that back out in your substack and stuff. Um, and one other question. Um, an observation I want to pressure test with you as a journalist and Richard as a, as, as an, so, you know, with his academic position, whatever stance he wants to come at it from. If you take today's cancel culture as a, as a, as a deliberate method, additional method of controlling narrative, so in specifically to do with um, journalists and investigative reporters and so on. So let's say, for example, um, you know, anyone who has been um, pushed out of the mainstream media and had to find another place, where do they end up? Well, they end up in a fragmentary location. Maybe it's trying to fumble their way through, setting the podcast, doing Substack or whatever, but they all become atomized, right? Now that sounds okay because at least they've got a place to go. And actually you don't need many numbers to pull in a reasonable income off Substack if, you, if you're charging $5 a month and you get 700 people. Scott Ritter's actually, um, Scott Ritter's extra post has just done something. I've never seen a Substack, Substacker do. They've admitted how many um, supporters, subscribers they got in, since they started and how many of those are paid. 8,700. 8, so they're pulling in three and a half grand a month. Good for them, I say. Right. So you can, you know, if you write well and you have a bit of following and people can get to you, being atomized in that way isn't necessarily purely bad for the individual. It depends on the individual. But for the reader, what we're in now is a world where cancel culture driving atomization of information means that you've got even less information competition against the mainstream because there is no effective um, alternative newspaper, say, because all of the alt media is fractured into small outlets all running their own agendas. And I would argue that there's probably, I, I think that there's um, value in simply taking, um, creating a kind of aggregative portal Right, which which basically curates a bunch of mixed alt media 
high quality alt media output, regardless of whether it's left or right, you know, a spectrum of stuff. Now, there's one analog that I can sort of lazily point to, and that would be Zero Hedge, which is this reputedly libertarian, originally financially orientated um, aggregate of multiple... (laughs) I know them. (laughs) They aggregate my stuff. I find them really useful as a reference, irrespective of what you make of the underlying politics or the editorial bent. I can go there, I can get a load of different takes quite quickly on certain things, and then I can, and I can drill in a bit deeper on that angle if I want to. Now, just switch that, create the same thing that will unify you, the grey zone, everybody, and bring, bring all of these things into one place. And that would enable people to go around and instead of saying, hey, look at the grey zone for this, and look at Michael Tracy for that, and look at for... You just go, go and check out the portal, go and check out whatever this thing is, and, and just bring it into your news fold every day or week, and just start looking at a different perspective to the, to, to the CNN bullshit of this world. Would that value-add thing? Because it wouldn't mean that you'd need to create a, a newspaper or any of that cost. It's just some guy in a room aggregating stuff and putting out um, a one-source spread of reference for people to go to. Yeah, you know, I think some of what you're saying there definitely makes sense uh, in principle. I think the larger issue, though, in terms of kind of uh, penetrating the wider public consciousness um, is that there are going to be some inherent limitations to, for example, writing a set. Like uh, when Matt Taibbi was writing cover stories for Rolling Stone, those stories weren't writing on necessarily the individual um, uh, cachet of Taibbi himself, right? It was Rolling Stone had granted it's institutional imprimatur to the stories. And so, you know, when they would be reported on elsewhere in the media, it would be like, it would be something like Rolling Stone reported such and such. Um, and because Rolling Stone is like a known commodity that, that automatically has like a, some degree of purchase in the public understanding. Now I think the uh, Rolling Stone, like in its current uh, ownership and uh, editorial structure uh, ought not to be given any credibility uh, on those grounds, like just because it's a brand, right? Because I mean, the current editor of Rolling Stone, I think is like one of the most subtly pernicious people in media. I know Noah Shackman, uh, but I'm not going to get too deep into that. Just to say that um, for better or worse, like the Rolling Stone brand is going to go a long way and sort of, um, you know, uh, raising awareness of whatever Rolling Stone might report because people know what Rolling Stone is, whereas they might not know exactly like what is, what is, what is Tybee on Substack mean? You know, and Tybee is one of the most, you know, prominent sub people on Substack. So maybe there's like a bit of an exception built in for him. Um, But like, it's hard to be able to compete with like, uh, like if you're a reporter at the New York times and you do like one big story every couple months like you're not banking on your own individual reach to ensure that the story is going to get uh, airtime or it's going to be widely read, right? It's already you're, you're you're banking on the institutional imprimatur of the New York Times, um, and it would be nice to have like some sort of equivalent of that emerge for this like alternative uh, media ecosystem. I'm not sure if a portal would exactly do it. Um, uh, but like, you know, it would have been the case in like, you know, for example, the 70s or 80s, 
that um, you could have like a legitimate like investigation in the village voice, say, right? That was maybe uh, on a subject that uh, came up with a conclusion uh, or uh, reporting that was counter to what you might have seen like in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And the, that would have been uh, pretty well sufficient to actually get the reporting a, a good amount of play and a wider pickup throughout the rest of the media because, you know, the Village Voice was an established sort of entity with credibility and with, you know, a, a, a stable of uh, noteworthy writers and, you know, well-regarded editors and so forth. Um, and now you don't really have that. Um, you don't really have any real uh, alternative uh, publications at all. It is, as you say, atomized. Um, how, how much of a causal connection there is there with, the, with cancel culture, I'm not sure. That's almost, I almost think that's not really even the main issue. Um, I, I don't really know what the, what the solution is um, because one of the problems is that it's almost, it almost doesn't make a whole lot. Like, you would think like, maybe in theory it would be a good idea for like, all like, your favorite alternative media people to like, you know, band together and just form their own publication, right? I mean, it's actually Barry Weiss seems to have just have uh, yeah, tried doing this. Is, she's trying yeah, to yeah. Do I haven't uh, looked into it that deeply, but um, <clears throat> but like, uh, you know, I was involved in a group that actually sort of uh, thought about this for a time within, I don't know, maybe two, uh, maybe two, two plus, two and a half years ago. Um, you know, you'd know who uh, the people are if I were to name them, but I'm not going to name them. Um and like eventually it just kind of became clear that the economics didn't quite add up because, uh, you know, there's a lot of overhead and there's a lot of sort of like, uh, uh like administrative, uh, work that would need to be done to actually ha- organize a full fledged, you know, autonomous publication. Um, whereas it was, it was very lucrative for a lot of people, or it still is for it to, to just run like a Substack or to run one of these more just individualized or quote animized uh, media operations that are just under their own purview, where like the uh, administrative work is basically just taken on by like a Substack or you know Patreon or whatever, and uh, not worry about like the uh, you know the you know the uh, you know, the pain and suffering of actually having to run an organization. <laughs> um, so yeah, what what the uh, is there an answer? I don't know. Maybe there maybe there isn't. But that's sort of you know my, the thoughts that came to mind for me. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, I totally get the whole the whole you know problem of trying to set up a newspaper you don't want to do that you don't need to right and that's kind of why the aggregator portal would would at least give people who knew about it a single url to pass off and spread around and promulgate on twitter and whatever to just get people looking into a into a lead point single lead point that gets them into a whole other set of reporting that they may not really be looking at yet and you know, and make it easier to spread sort of access to the the sort of quote unquote alt. But um, at the same time, you know, you wouldn't have, you know, everybody would be doing their own thing. It would just be brought together. Because one of the problems with atomization for me is this: if you think about subscription models, okay, you're basically talking. If I pay a minimum of five dollars a month to all of the writers I like to support, I could be ending up with subscriptions at fifty, sixty, eighty dollars a month, right? Right. So what am I going to do? I'm going to kind of psychologically do the opposite. I'm going to run on a, like a, a minimal um, subscription basis if I want to, right? And, uh, and and I can get quite a lot of stuff for free. But whereas, you know, so so actually in a way, um, the Substack model kind of is is a, is a, it's got pros and cons to it, hasn't it? Because it does it's never going to get you everyone signed up um, that that could be. But at the same time, it's clearly it's clearly for the right people, 
uh, is clearly a, a, a decent source of income qu quickly one if you've already got a rep and and so in a way you know the portal side of things is just this very simple administrative aggregator that anyone can do with really basic technology all right i mean <clears throat> yeah i mean i was just going to say i mean it seems like a pretty simple thing that like you could possibly do yourself right gator i mean i don't, I don't know your, te your technical um know-how but like that seems like a fairly um simple um simple project for somebody who's uh, interested in doing it yeah and you don't even need buy-in of the people that you're pointing at you just zero edge right. doesn't does it it just points at, it highlights sh stories it likes and then occasionally rips the shit out of the ones it, it wants to yeah the shit out of, you know which is, I think, has value and merit. So yeah, I noticed. Uh, I did notice at one point that they were ripping the shit out of my uh, items and not asking for uh, permission, <laughs> which I didn't really object to. But I just, uh, I just took note of. <laughs> okay, just out of interest, before I go, then, how do you feel about the way you were treated in that respect? Because obviously, if I did this or somebody else I know did this, it would be worth us knowing what to take on board because because it'd be likely unlikely to be in direct contact with everybody you know that we're re referencing really and you don't want to make mistakes like that um you know my attitude toward that kind of thing whether it's zero hedge or some other places because you know because they do run their own it, editorial it, slant don't they? that's the thing yeah the portal i'm talking about wouldn't have any editorial slant well it kind of implicitly does by what it chooses to aggregate right um uh, I'm trying to remember what exactly I said to them. I forget now. I, I thought I could look it up, but um, I don't know. My attitude has always been toward that stuff. That you know, as long as they uh, credit me mm -hmm. and like hope, you know, hopefully maybe uh, you know graciously include a link to the original, then I'm I'm fine with it. I mean, there's no use really objecting to people ripping stuff on the internet because it's good mm -hmm. and it's inevitable. Uh, I just would just think it's a matter of sort of like you just uh, decorum. Um, or, um, you know, basic sort of just internet matters that you would at least, you know, give credit and then, uh, put a link. So that, that's really just all I ask for, uh, if I ever am in a position to ask, but most of the time they, they don't, yeah, so, nobody, so nobody so even asks for permission. So if they were going to responsibly, um, reference you correctly, credit quote tightly, you know, and then, and then, and then date basically drive through to your work and then be fair in what they're saying is essentially what you're asking for, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Cool. Bless. Simple. Cool. All right. Okay, thanks, Gator. Cheers, dude. Take easy, mate. All right. Uh, Richard seems to have uh, tuned out, which is uh, his right after the two-hour mark. But uh, Andrew, number two, you're up. If you're still there, you have been waiting patiently. So it would be a shame if you have – there you go. Yeah, I just have a uh, retarded phone, so I appreciate you waiting for the phone to figure out if it wanted to work. <laughs> hey, it was ultimately only like four seconds, so no skin off Listen, my head. When you're when you're doing a show, that four seconds of dead air, I mean that that could be painful. So I appreciate it, people, Michael. Happy people New Year, don't bro. tune into the show for the uh high production values, I don't think so. <laughs> That's funny. Uh well basically the take that I want to discuss is uh, where you differ, where you agree with Alex Jones, because I think if you look over the last 20 years, uh, he's been the most accurate political analyst of anybody, or geopol geopolitical analyst, anything, current events, current affairs, where world affairs are going. Uh, the guy was talking about the government developing biopins in a lab in a 2009 documentary called Endgame. So you look back at the things that he said, and it's scary accurate, 
So I'm just curious, your thoughts, Michael, where do you agree with Alex Jones's worldview and where do you differ? <laughs> wow. Um, you know, actually, uh, I, uh, I did a profile, I guess a profile of sorts of Alex Jones that you could look up if you're interested. This was in 2013, back when it was still like somewhat novel to like write about Alex Jones. It was like, I guess before he had like a fully penetrated mainstream consciousness. Um, and I interviewed him, uh, you can actually find it. And it was like, sort of like as he was doing his radio show. So I, I interviewed him sort of live on air while he was on air, but it was for like for my own thing. Um, and, uh, it was around that year's like a Bilderberg uh, meeting that was in Virginia in, um, 2012. And then I, uh, uh, the piece ended up coming out, I think in 2013, but, um, I guess, you know, I was trying to sort of nail down like what the worldview was of the types of person, uh, people who were so uh, invested in Alex Jones that they would, you know, make a pilgrimage across the country to go to this, uh, sort of like weird protest zone in like a nondescript office park type place in, uh, the middle of, uh, Northern Virginia that, um, you know, where you have to, like, you pass by all these, like, weapons contractors and uh, so forth, and not really a hot destination uh, where that uh, particular Bilderberg meeting was. And it was sort of like, you know, Alex Jones was the uh, convener of the festivities in a way. Um, <clears throat> now, in terms of, so, but in terms of what his worldview is, I, I find it difficult to say. I mean, I don't even know how you would describe his worldview. I mean, go and listen to, I mean, I'm sure you could find stuff that he was prescient on, um, plausible in terms of like civil liberties. I mean, I know that he was, um, you know, because like what the, when I first heard about Alex Jones, probably in like the mid 2000s, he was like, uh, he was more coded as left wing than right wing. I don't think he was ever actually exactly left wing, but if you had to choose one or another in terms of what he was sort of like coded as, it would have been left wing uh, in part because like he was all into the nine 11 was an inside job thing. And he would like, you know, bullhorn events screaming nine 11 was an inside job. When that was that vindicated, like, I don't know what your view is on that. Um, you know, I remember him, uh, you know, being, you know, uh, utterly convinced. I mean, he had the, about, um, you know, Obama birth certificate stuff, and like, uh, how his father was the, Obama's real father is this, uh, you know, Marxist somebody or other. I don't even remember now. Um, uh, and that, that, but that, it's that, a that, communist that was, in Chicago. this was like in the early, two, yeah. Um, now does that amount to Alex Jones's worldview? I'm not sure. I mean, the, I think the latest kind of prolonged Alex Jones thing I, I, I saw, which was him talking, yeah, I mean, I watched some of that Kanye thing recently, but actually, go and list, go and watch Alex Jones give a, giving like a fire and brimstone sermon at this thing called the Jericho March, which this it was in December of 2020. It was sort of like a precursor event to January 6th, and I'm not doing like the whole uh, you know histrionic take on January 6th, but there was like a religious revival type rally that these groups held in DC. In January, in December of 2020, like leading up to January 6th, where like they were talking about how, you know, the fate of 
civilization hinged on Donald Trump staying in office for another four years. Alex Jones did like a full-fledged you know, like Christian, almost like the, like disturbingly kind of like theocratic, um, again, you know, sermon with, you know, overtly Christian in its uh, kind of, uh, you know, thematic sort of backdrop um, where you, 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 you thought that he would be... He came off as like an end times preacher, okay? I'm not even really exaggerating. Um, so what is his worldview? I mean, it seems like it's so all over the place that it's impossible to actually distill into anything other than, you know, what the media tends to distill him into, which is a conspiracy theorist because there actually there have been some conspiracy theories he's been promo- that he's promoted which have not been accurate, whereas some others that he's promoted probably were prescient in that he was, you know, analyzing information that uh, maybe hadn't uh, sort of entered into mainstream consciousness enough to gain sort of uh, uh, notoriety. So I don't know. I, I find it difficult to answer that question other than to um, probably be uh, doubtful that I would necessarily just like, associate myself with any, in any kind of holistic sense with the worldview of Alex Jones. Well, I appreciate you giving uh, your full and honest assessment of the situation. All I'll say is that as for him uh, assuming the role of a Christian preacher, I think that's absolutely called for in these times. He's got a big microphone, and you look around the world, everything looks pretty satanic that the mainstream is pumping out. I mean, the drag queens uh, like in front of children, uh, the, the vaccine causing people to drop dead, which does happen. You can say, how often does it happen? Whatever. But the fact that they'd push this on people to the point where, okay, we're going to shut down businesses. You're going to lose your job if you don't take it. Uh, and then look at what's going on in the world. They want to shut down energy across Europe. Uh, California's passing bills saying, oh, we're not going to have gas-powered cars. They want to take away energy. The World Economic Forum talking about you're going to eat the bugs. So everything looks pretty end times these days. I don't, I don't mind him at all assuming the role of a Christian preacher. And, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you uh, having the discourse. It's been fun. And the last thing I'll say is uh, the Zohar is literally the Holy Grail. People turned off by religion should be because most people in religion are in it for their ego or for money or for power. But I would encourage people to check out the Zohar, zohar.com, literally the Holy Grail. Okay. Uh, I'm personally not convinced of the imminence of the end times, but uh, as always and with everything else, I'm open to additional evidence. All right, uh, Matt, I see you're back on the queue. I don't know if that's on purpose uh, or uh, that uh, you just uh, accidentally added. Okay. Because I wanted to yeah. tell you, okay. because your girl, you were so kind to introduce me to your girlfriend, to answer <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, there's no one that I'd rather spend the end times with, guys. Um, <laughs> so we looked up, Chalita, or my fiance looked up some radio media and. So they've been staking out this guy for organized crime, like, I guess, like somewhere between kidnapping and rolling a brothel, right? And rape um, since spring. And they moved in because she did have an American. That's what Randy and Rudy's media reporting, reporting a 21-year-old American called the embassy, called like a task force at the embassy. Right. Um, so that's why they moved in. Uh, Jerry for this most, for this most, for this most recent, not why they moved in. <laughs> for this most recent, like so, this most recent arrest, like to the one today, that was after a twenty-one-year-old American called in. Yeah. 
Okay, because I, I know that I read that whatever like they moved in in uh, when they moved in like last April, it was also because some American called in. Um, they could stop. Yeah. <coughs> All right. Well, uh, I don't know if she's still right. listening. Hopefully, she's uh, asleep at this point. But if she's uh, maybe in the morning, I'll uh, I'll give her the update. So thanks, Matt. <laughs> no problem, man. Take it easy. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody. And. Uh, we shall do it again soon. Appreciate it. This was a uh, an unusual uh, call in in a variety of respects, but a but a good one in its unusual. <laughs>